Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Paco, welcome back to 10% True. It's great to have you on the podcast again. It's good to see you, Steve. I'm, uh, I enjoy doing this. Hope it goes well for you. Well, we, we love listening to you, so thank you. Um, the, the, the purpose of today's, I don't want to call it an interview, sounds formal, but the purpose of today's conversation then is yeah. to understand a little bit, of Ben, about how you became the sort of Eagle, F-15 Eagle fighter pilot who went on to take command of the 58th TAP Fighter Squadron, turned it into a, a killing machine, and then that unit went out to the desert in 19, well, late 1990, early 1991. I think they got about 16 kills for about 1,800 combat sorties. And all of the people I've spoken to who were in that unit, the guerrillas, uh, directly attribute that success to what you did with the squadron when you when you took it over in sort of late 1980s. And you're going to talk us through the process of how you came to be that person, the person who inspired them and, and changed them and did the things that you did. But before we talk about that, I wanted to go right back to the beginning and understand from you what made you join the Air Force and fly fighters. What, yeah. what was your inspiration? Uh, I went to school at the University of Florida and majored. I have a degree in physics. I lied. It's actually a degree in phys ed. <laughs> and it took me five years to get through, and I went year-round. And when I graduated from Florida – uh, I had a teaching position, teaching phys ed to third graders. So I'd be standing out in the grass and all these little kids are jumping all over me and, and I'm just looking around going, and nothing against little kids, but, you know, I'm 21 at the time and I'm going, there's got to be more than this in the world, making $6,000, you know, blowing up balloons and kicking soccer balls. Walked back over to my apartment. And in the mailbox was an occupant postcard from the Air Force recruiter. And I said, huh. I go to the Air Force recruiter. I walk in and I said, you know what? I'm thinking I might like to join the Air Force. What, what can you do for me? 
and you do anything. He said, you got a college degree? And I said, yeah. He goes, we can make you a pilot. I went, oh, I, I, I've never flown airplanes. He goes, well, we can, we can train you to be one. Just take this little aptitude test and uh, you pass that. We'll send you to officer's candidate school for 90 days and then make you a pilot. And I said, I said, is it like really hard? He goes, I wouldn't worry about it. You're a damn college graduate. I said, yeah, okay. And we're walking down the hall for me to take it. And he looks over his shoulder. He goes, what'd you get your degree in? I said, phys ed. And he goes, mm, I'd worry about it. <laughs> but it came okay. I took this test and I passed it. And um, 90 days later, I was on a train, went to San Antonio, went to OTS and uh, had no idea about flying airplanes or, you know, any of that nonsense, but went to OTS, came out of OTS and went to Lubbock, Texas. Had no desire really to be a pilot, but now that I was an officer in the Air Force, I said, Man, maybe there's some other things that I can do that I want to do. And so what I did is I applied for a, a strength coach position at the Air Force Academy. I said, that'd be fun, you know, my career. So I go out and interview and all that kind of stuff. And they said, well, you know, we'll make our selections in May. This was in January. And I said, okay. So I go back and my class starts two weeks later. And we're meeting our instructors. And so I'm, I meet my instructor's name was Hutch. And uh, he said, what do you want to do? What do you want to fly? And I went, no, I ain't. I ain't doing this. I said, as soon as I can, I'm going to go ahead and drop this, just eliminate this and go to the gym and work out for about five or six months and then go to the Air Force Academy. He goes, well, they're not going to let you work in the gym. They're going to make you rake and mow grass and everything. He said, I went, damn. He said, now, if I was you, what I'd do is just start pilot training. And when May comes, you can just quit, go to the Academy. I said, yeah, okay. He said, yeah, I'll show you how to do it. And I said, okay. May came. Hey, uh, we're looking for you to come to the academy. And I said, I kind of like this. And I stayed. So it was purely, totally by accident. And I was extremely lucky because a lot of kids want to do this their whole life. And I did it because I didn't want to teach phys ed to third graders. So I was very, very lucky. Uh, went through flight school and I told Hutch, he said, what do you want to fly? And I said, I have something big, you know, what's the biggest airplane there is? He said, you mean like a B-52 or something? I said, if it's big, yeah. And he goes, no, no. He said, I'll just wash you out right now. and won't even let you graduate. He said, what you want to do? And so he was the one that pretty much uh, set my mind right as far as what you want to do in pilot training, how hard you want to work, and what you want to gain from going to flight school. And I graduated top of my class, so I got first choice. And all the assignments came down, and the way they did it was first in the class gets to pick first, second, pick second. And we show up at night over there, and uh, you know, I go in with him and, and uh, all the assignments are on the board, you know, everything from OV-10s and an F-4 to big airplanes. And uh, I said, I'll take the F-4. He goes, okay. They erase it off the board and that was it. Went to Luke where I, in Phoenix, where I upgraded to the F-4 
and did two tours in the F4, one at Eglin and one in Thailand before I left the F4 community and uh, went to Nellis as an aggressor. When I showed up at Eglin, I was a brand new lieutenant. Uh, most of those guys were majors and very you know, senior as far as I'm concerned. And I'm just a slick wing first lieutenant walking in F4 pilot and thought I was something else, but I wasn't. But I mean, I walked in and first thing that happened is I met my flight commander. And he said, uh, did you... Did you get your five rides, your five uh, flights at night at Luke? And I went, yes, sir. And he goes, how come you don't have a star on your wings? And I went, oh, I, I didn't know. So I go back, I get a star put on my wings. Now I'm walking around in the squadron and the ops officer, a major walks up and he goes, how come you're wearing senior pilot wings? And I said, I, I got five night rides at Luke. And he goes, dumbass, take those off. You're just a slick wing captain. You're not a command pilot. And I went, so I knew it was going to be, okay, this is how this world runs. But while I'm talking to the ops officer, he was a major, old crusty major. He had an old crusty ass weapon school patch on it. And I said, why is, why do you have that patch? And nobody else does. He goes, I went to fight a weapon school at Nellis Air Force Base. I said, what is that? He said, well, it's a school, it's a flying school where they take the cream of the crop and they teach you to be the best of the best. And I said, ooh, can I go? He goes, that ain't how it works. You know, he went through some criteria of this and that and this and that. He said, but if you work hard and let people know there's a very short window, but if you can go, you need to go. And so he set me up as a brand new lieutenant in the F-4, 20 hours in the airplane of wanting to go to fighter weapons school. Something more than just being a line jock walking around. And so that's what set it up. And so I flew my uh, 18 months at Eglin, and then I flew my 15 months in Thailand in the F-4 and uh, was able to fly a lot. I upgraded as an IP in the F-4 and uh, worked hard to get an assignment because when I left Thailand, 95% of the assignments, because the war had wound down, was out of fighters, into facts, and people getting out, going to the airlines. So OB-10s, O-2s, Army uh, exchange, flying, riding a Jeep, you know, and this and that and this and that. And uh, my detailer, my personnel guy talked to me when I was in Thailand and he said, uh, if you stay there an extra three months, I can put you in a squadron at Nellis that's starting. It's called the Aggressor Squadron flying T-38s. Or you can leave now and go fly an O-2 somewhere. And I went, cool, I'll stay, you know. And so I stayed and I left in uh, December of uh, 75 and went to Nellis as an aggressor. Parker, can you talk a little bit about the F4? One of the things that is interesting when you look at the continuum 
uh, let's say over the last 50, 60 years of aircraft development is this rapid advancement in capability that happens you know, with the development of microelectronics and militarization and being able to create missiles and put more and more capable radars in. And there's a big jump, obviously, between the F-4 and the F-15. But just for some context then for when you do come to talk about the F-15, what was that? Were you flying a D model? What, was it, what were its capabilities? What was it like? When I flew the F-4 at Luke in, in uh, uh, upgrade training, what they, they call it RTU, replacement training. It's a replacement training unit. It's where you get your initial training in that particular weapon system. It was an F-4C. Didn't have a gun. You could carry a gun pod. And 90% of what you did was air to ground. Just dropping, practicing dropping bombs. And a little bit of air to air against each other. F4 against F4. But as a wingman, all you did was you were put in a, quote, flying, fighting wing position. You're put a thousand feet behind your instructor, and your job was to just stay there while he chased the other airplane around. So you learned zero, okay? Uh, there was an intercept phase. Uh, the radar is a pulse radar, so it paints the ground just like it paints an airplane. So if the airplane is that you're looking for is slightly below you, the earth is bigger than him. What you paint is the earth. You can't find him. So everybody's got to keep getting lower and lower and lower. So as far as air to air, eh, no, it was just, there just wasn't nothing to it. It didn't even have, like I said, it wasn't a gun. It was an interceptor. It was built to do nothing but shoot AIM-7s and AIM-9 missiles and not dogfight, period. When I went to Eglin, it was an entirely different world. Eglin had E-models that had built-in guns, and, and they were slatted airplanes, which meant the wing was a different wing. It, was, it had slats and stuff to give it more maneuverability. So I come from RTU and go to Eglin, and it was considered an F-4 air-to-air wing. So now the mission changed. I had no air-to-air experience, but everything we were doing was air-to-air, flying against other types of airplanes, flying against each other, and I mean, I was just clueless and just hanging on to these guys, trying to figure no more fighting wing. You're out here by yourself. We're, we're doing, trying to coordinate and, and engage. And I mean, it was, it, it was so far over my head. It was scary, but I kept trying and kept trying. The radar was still the same radar. The avionics were still the same uh, pulse radar, but the airplane maneuverability was different and was better and it had a gun. So you knew that they expected that, yeah, the world is learning that you can't just necessarily live by missiles, that you are gonna eventually merge with somebody and have to fight 1v1 basic fighter uh, tactics. And so for me, I flew the F-4, like I said, for about three years. So my transition was just a mud dauber in RTU into a, just a air-to-air wing, just nothing but air-to-air, holy mackerel, trying to do that. And then I leave Eglin and go to Karat, back to air-to-ground. Back to air-to-ground. And my air-to-ground skills had gone to hell in the handbag. And I mean, I could not, you know, it was embarrassing. I just couldn't do anything on the range because I kept reverting back to, well, I, you know, I can fly air-to-air but I can't do air to ground. So it took a lot of work and, and, and study to learn how to do that, that type of mission before I went off to the aggressors. So it was, and there's two people 
in the F-4. It's the only airplane I flew that had more than one person in it, other than the Southwest. But so the success of the, the airplane itself was the resource management between the two of you. If all you're doing is screaming at each other, <laughs> you know, you're not going to do nothing. But if you're not talking to each other and he doesn't know his role and you don't know your role as far as, you know, what you can do and what you can't do, it's totally on, on it's, it's just not, you can't do it. You need to have crew. You need to be crewed. You need to have a backseater and a front seater that fly together just like they were married. And so that's what happened. They would crew you and you would learn both of you. So I had an experienced backseater because I was inexperienced in the front and he would teach all that cockpit and, and everything. And it was weird because the technology began to change and we were hearing about the F-15 single seat pulse Doppler having to read what the hell is that radar and, and how far it could see. And, uh, I don't have to talk to nobody. No, you're going to do it all by yourself with your hands and, and this and that. And it was, it was above your comprehension until you got in it the first time. And it, it was just so natural hmm. playing what we call the piccolo. So um, a lot of people will tell you that uh, two seats are better than one seat. Two sets of eyeballs are better than one set of eyeballs. Two sets of eyeballs is great when your avionics suck. One set of eyeballs is perfect when your avionics are primo. Hmm. You know, what was there a moment then? And, and we can return when you talk about the Eagle, we can return to that sort of theme, but with the air to air side, then is there a moment when it clicked did you, were, were you, you know, is there a, a visceral moment where you're doing something in the aeroplane and suddenly you realize you can do it? Does it actually not happen like that? Does it happen over a period of months where gradually you get better? What's the experience of becoming proficient or even good at it? I, I think, I think when, when we, when I transitioned from what we call fighting wing and fighting wing was a carryover from World War II. That's what they did in World War II because they put a guy behind the leader to stay back there to protect him against gun attacks. So it was just purely against gun attacks, but it takes one whole weapon system out of the mix. At Eglin, when I went to Eglin and, and it became an air-to-air -air wing, you know, my first air-to-air -air sortie, I'm no longer tied behind this guy. I'm 9,000 feet out to his right or his left, stacked two or 3,000 feet above and below with lookout doctrine and all that kind of stuff and freedom to move uh, based on what we're doing. But the hardest thing for me to learn was it's three-dimensional. I can go up, I can go down, I can go left, I can go right. I don't have to be everything single plane based on what he's doing, but that's what I was accustomed to doing. So uh, it took me probably at least six months before I realized with an experienced backseater who was, who actually it would be another pilot, an experienced backseater, a pilot who I later was with in the weapons school who would say, he would talk you through it. Go up, go up, go up, come. And, and that's what began to click. When I had somebody show me once, here's what we're trying to do. Oh, okay. 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 Don't maneuver. You know, you're not, you're no longer maneuvering relative to your, Slightly, 
you're maneuvering relative to that bandit, not the flight leader. And once he got me understanding that, it, it just clicked. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It's starting to make sense now. Now I can evaluate turning room and, and energy states and, and things like that. And, and it, doesn't have, it doesn't all have to happen in five seconds, you know. One of the things that people say about you, I, I got to be careful. I don't want to sound like a sycophant, um, but I, but I can repeat the things that say to me. And when you know, I put it out there that you and I were going to have this interview, and some, you know, one of the guys used to fly with you, BD, got in touch with me, um, and you know, he told me some stories, which hopefully you'll you'll, you'll talk about later about you know, sort of uh, some funny stories. But the other thing he said was that you know, he, he and one of his uh, one of your other colleagues, who, who still apparently says this, is that when Parker wanted to take ten knots off of you, he took ten knots off of you. Um, and and one of the things that everybody agrees, we had I had Sly McGill on. Sly McGill said the same thing. I'll put a link in the description if you know people at home have not watched that interview, but do because it's great. Is that you were really really good, really really good at this. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know, did that then happen? through sheer force of will or were there was there an inkling was that guy in your backseat were the people that were flying with you in senior leadership positions at Eglin and then in Thailand able to actually see something in you that was different how did how did you get to a point then when you were so good yeah now not uh trying to make this sound as if uh you know this is not an ego trip but for me, I could, I could listen to you, I could see it, and I could do it. And, and I always credited it. a lot of the skill that I had as far as being able to teach and to do what I did as it was a God-given talent. I, I think my athletic talent it became athletics in the air. I, I always treated everything I did was it's another game. My coaches told me what to do. I know what the basics are. Follow the game plan. You'll be successful. And, and this, I don't want this to sound wrong because I don't have a great big vocabulary against, you know, people that maybe, you know, might have a degree in lunar architecture or something, but I don't think you can take two guys and uh, expect just because he has a degree in physics or something and you have it in phys ed uh, means he's going to be better. I, I think in this world of uh, dancing to the sugar plum fairies that you have to have some kind of an athletic ability to do this and to do it correctly. Now, that's in the area that we lived in, that I lived in until 94 when I got out. You know, I have no idea what they do in the, you know, these magic jets and, and all this type of stuff now. You know, I, I don't know if they even fly the kind of stuff that we used to do or teach how we used to teach or whatever. I just know from talking to them, uh, they sit down and talk to us and ask us questions and they're flabbergasted at what we used to do. So they don't do the same thing. And, and you may need more um, science-oriented education to do what they're doing. But during my time frame, 90% of the guys that I knew, you know, like in the weapons school or whatever, they were very athletic. Uh, you know, uh, college sports, uh, high school sports. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just 
it was just, it was that. I, I just, I, I credit it to, to the, the DNA that my mom and dad gave me. So is that, a, really is that, is, is that a question then of physicality? Uh, is it a question of mindset? Is it combination of the two? Because it, I, I'm lucky and I've, I've been able to fly in the backseat of some fast jets and I've done BFM and, and, and various other things. And it's really, really physical. And, and I remember the first time, you know, I pulled seven or eight G and it went on for 20, 30 seconds. I thought I was going to die. I mean, it was, it was, it's just a totally different environment. But, but do you, um, you know, when you talk about then that physical education or your physicality as an individual, is it that transplanted into the cockpit or is it that you actually have some kind of mindset that is different? And so no, you approach it. I think it transfers right into the cockpit. I used to strap that thing on and I strapped it on like it was my uniform in my new helmet. Is my new pads, is my new everything. This whole little thing now is an extension of my body. And uh, in my head, there was nobody that was going to win. It just, there was, I didn't care. You know, I, I'll go out and teach you and I'll do what I can do. to. But when, when it comes time that we're going to no longer teach, we're going to, I expect you to show me what you can do. Uh, my mindset was, before we would start an engagement in my head, I would go, there's no way, absolutely no way that somebody's going to beat me unless he just plows into me. It's just not going to happen. And so I did everything I could over 100%. And, you know, they talk about G-lock, passing out, getting tired. Uh, that's a mindset. You, you tell yourself, hmm. I ain't gonna get tired. I ain't gonna, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna do what I need to do to physically beat you with this airplane that they've given me to do it with. I didn't, I mean, it just, it was, it was, I never ever went out thinking, ah, I bet you I get my ass kicked today. No, <laughs> that's just not gonna be the way it's gonna be. It's just not going to be the way it's going to be. You know, you're going to have to prove to me that you did it. So, so is the, the, the mental side of things then, um, maybe the emotional side of things. So you've got an ego, you're a type A personality, you like to win, uh, you're going to um, conquer your um, challenges in life, whatever, however philosophically you view those things, you're going to come out the winner. How did you then deal with not winning? And did that have a bearing then on on your ability then to teach later as an aggressor yeah, it, and then as a as a weapons school guy? Yeah, when when I felt like I lost, uh, I was very congratulatory. Uh, three things that I took with me many many times was because I felt like I had, I, I, you know, it's an ego thing. I felt like I had more talent than everybody else. Period. You know, this is who I am. And I didn't care who you were. I'd meet you. Hey, how you doing? And the first thing through my head was, I've got more talent than you. I've got more talent you'll never have. Okay, period. That was in my head. I didn't say it to him. But externally, I always said, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be approachable. If you got questions, but I'm going to be credible. And credible means when I say this is what I can do, I can do it. 
and I'm going to show you I can do it. And so uh, if I got my ass kicked, I was humble about it. Hey, you did a good job. But in the back of my mind, we're going to do this again. It may not be today. It may be tomorrow, but uh, we're going to do this again. And we're going to do it until I prove to you that I'm credible and uh, you were lucky. You didn't do it by anything, by any skill. You know, you need to remember in the F-15, I used to tell weapons school students and guys in the squadron primarily, I would tell them uh, uh, flying skills and uh, study skills. Mm-hmm. 90% is just my rule. 90% of the F-15 guys could use 10% of the airplane. My job was there's 10% of us that can use 90%. And that's my job is to make you all all of you, the 10%, using 90% of that airplane. You have, just like F-16s are in it, you have F-15 pilots and you have F-15 employers. So 90% can use 10%. They're just, hey, guess what? I wore an Eagle patch, got me an Eagle driver patch on and shit like that. Yeah. Couldn't have a midair if they briefed it for two hours. <laughs> but 10% of the guys could use 90% of that airplane. And that's, that's the difference. And I was that I was one of those 10 percenters and I just, I didn't have a problem in my head knowing that I was one of the 10 percenters. I wouldn't tell you, I'm just, I'm one of the 10 percenters. And that's the way I treated it when I walked out. So, so those values then, I mean, you know, hum- humble, approachable, credible, those are, you know, obviously what, what the weapons school teaches as well. But are you, are you saying then that it, you had those in your mind before you got to that point in your career that that so so you were you were a sort of fit culturally then for when you did get to the weapon yeah. school. The, the weapon school shows uh to be humble credible and approachable that that was in the weapon school when it originated when i walked in that was a, and it was a carryover from the aggressors when i was an aggressor pilot flying t-38s every thing we did was no matter what the result of this thing, whether you win or you lose flying against people that you're training, be humble, be humble and be approachable. But when you get in the air, be credible. But those two things on the ground, be humble and be approachable. And, uh, and it was a carryover to the schoolhouse. Were you seeing those um, values or those attributes playing through when you were flying the F-4 then? So I'm curious to know, we, 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 I, I've kind of in, interrupted your flow. You were talking about how you got to the aggressors, and I've, I've, I've taken you down a oh, couple of fine. rabbit warrants. But, but one of the things I'm curious to understand is what you saw that you liked in your leadership when you were a, a young guy, what you, saw, what you saw that you didn't like, um, whether there were people you thought, I'm going to model my, when I'm a leader, I'm going to model myself on their leadership or I'm going to not model myself on their leadership. What were you seeing? And, you know, culturally, what was happening in, in the Air Force at that time? Um, up until I came out of the F-4, uh, the war in Southeast Asia was pretty much over. And we had a surplus. So there were people uh, getting rift. you know, we don't need you anymore, getting passed over. We don't need you anymore. And... The F-4 was going away because we saw the F-15s coming, you know. And so the F-4 was, you know, uh, 
just was kind of sliding. And uh, everybody wanted to, they saw the world changing. If the things come in, you know, uh, the Air Force doctrine is changing from uh, one role, multi-role, uh, let's do everything half-assed, let's try to do a couple of things well. And so we saw the roles all changing. And to tell you the truth, I remember even in the F-4 going, you know, I don't mind flying this thing, but if there's a chance I can get out of it and go fly something else, I'll be happy to as long as it's a jet, you know. I don't want to fly no O2. I don't want to drive no Jeep for the army and shit like that. But if you got something that will continue to, to mold, I'll do it. But probably the majority of them were bailing and going to the airlines, hmm. going to the airlines. And I'll tell you, when I went to Eglin, my ops officer, you know, I don't, it's probably not uh, appropriate to use names. I don't know. Up to you. Uh, but my ops officer, can I use names? Yeah. My ops officer was Major Buddy Green, crusty old bastard, thin, smoking pell-mells, no damn uh, thing. And he had a weapon school pass that looked like it was 50 years old. And he had been in 20 plus years, major, no degree. But he could fly the piss out of that airplane, that F-4. My uh, flight commander, Bobby Ellis, one of my best friends, uh, could fly the piss out of that F-4. Bobby ends up going to the F-15. When I ended up coming to the F-15, after a couple of years later, I walk in, he's my instructor. Hmm. And we both go to the weapon school together. And we both are instructors at the weapon school together. Those two guys in particular, when I was at Eglin, were 100% everything I did was with those two guys. And I had a Marine exchange officer who's a friend of McGill's who uh, I got to know real well. And he taught me a lot. So I had Dave McCarty, the golden Jubat. I had Buddy Green and Bobby Ellis. And those three guys in, in 15 months, I mean, they made me, I, I felt so, so comfortable, so at ease. I felt like I was really learning and I just was, I was excited. Then I leave and I go to Karat and I expect the same uh, kind of talent. No, it wasn't there. The war was over. So Karat and Thailand was being used. Hey, we had a guy that's been um, uh, in this staff job for three years and uh, um, he needs an overseas return date. He hadn't been overseas in four years, so let's send him over for a year and then send him back. So let's just get a update his overseas return date. You know, um, send this guy over. Uh, you know, you get a, a squadron commander to show up. Hey, this guy looks like he's going to be pretty good, pretty good. Get seven months, update your date, boom, gone. You know, so there's a bunch of LTs, lieutenants running around like me, you know, and we're all trying to figure out what the hell. And so there, we didn't have that kind of experience level. I didn't. Uh, and you were just kind of on your own. So I was able to take, though, what I'd learned at Eglin. If I'd have gone to Karat first, I'd have got out at the end of that F4 mm -hmm. tour, just like everybody else. But going to Eglin, saying, you know what? I think this is going to be good. I think this is going to be fun. 
you know, as long as I can stay in a jet. If I can't, I'm I'm gone. But and uh, the wing commander at Karat, I was a young uh, slick wing captain uh, instructor. He comes over, had been a Thunderbird, and he was getting requalled, and they stuck me with him. Damn. So I'm having to ride around his pit and let him get his landing currency and all that. And he could fly the piss out of that airplane, but he had to have an IP. And I got to where we would bullshit with him. And he, I liked him. He was a good guy. And I remember he asked me, he said, you know, what would you like to do? Would you like to uh, like go be an aide somewhere maybe or something? I'm going, no. I said, what I don't want to do is fly something with a prop. And I'd like to stay in jets. And he said, well, let's see what we can do. And so I think he helped me uh, get that aggressive tour to go to Nellis. What, what did you and know when I went to Nellis and got there, uh, I'm, one, I'm the first one to walk in without a Vietnam tour. I wasn't a big hit on campus. Huh? You know, I walk in, holy shit. I'm like, a, again, a slick wing captain, and there aren't any others. You know, I'm going, oh, my God. And married me up with a guy, an instructor, and uh, to teach me how to be an aggressor. And that squadron commander, that ops officer, everybody in that squadron welcomed me. Well, Earl was my ops officer. I'd be one. You can imagine what that was like. Hmm. squadron commander was you know same as her you know devil muller uh, uh ron iverson my pret all these guys with just thousands and thousands of our mig kills and this and that and i'm a i'm a turd walking in here i'm going oh jesus is this going to work and they took me just like i had been with them for 10 years and let me do my thing and Devil, my instructor, who called me as an aggressor, had played for the Chicago Bears. I saw him run through a brick wall one time. I mean, no shit. He was drunk, but I saw him run through a brick wall one time. And uh, I remember, uh, so we're both, uh, and all those guys were that kind of guy. They were very, very athletic, very, uh, you know. My squadron commander was an All-American defensive end at Georgia Tech. I mean, damn, you know. So it was, I could see what it was going to be. I could see. And Devil Muller, my instructor, as an aggressor when I first got there, he was, he he had the same mindset. He kind of helped me and guide me like he did. But uh, like we would go out and fly a 1B1 BFM or something like that. And I would maybe get a good handle on him. And I remember walking back in one day across the flight line and in the T-38, you wore your parachute. It wasn't in the seat. You wore it on your back. We're walking in and, and I'm flipping him some shit. And I said, how's it feel to get your ass handed to you? And he goes, really? What's that over there? And I look and he grabs my D-ring, pops my chute on the ramp. Now I'm walking across the ramp carrying all my shit, my damn parachute and everything. People looking at me like, what the hell is this rookie doing? Walking in through the squadron. So that's, that's, they set the tone. They set the tone. Yeah, he just popped my damn shoot on the ramp. 
you know. So it, it, it I, I, I cherish the time I spent in the F-4. I really do, because it was a good airplane. I learned a lot about energy maneuverability because you could, you could, you could just shit your airspeed away in that thing and just be a lead sled falling to the earth. Uh, you had to fly it. It didn't have all this weird flight controls. If you didn't use the rudder and, and, and keep that stick centered, you know, and, and, and do what you need to just be out of control. Uh, and you could, but you could run that thing out of airspeed. You could just, you didn't have to worry about any throttle modulation because it didn't have the thrust to weight like an F-15, but it, it, it taught you very, very, uh, I mean, excellent flying skills, excellent flying skills. And so, you know, it, there was nothing any better than coming back at Eglin from a four ship after flying against uh, somebody else and seeing four F-4s landing with their drag chute doors open, but no parachute. Because the first step in the spin recovery is drag chute deploy. Boop. <laughs> so, I mean, these guys are flying these airplanes to the limit, spinning them, you know, going out of control, going into popping that drag chute and then recovering and releasing it out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. Four airplanes landing, you know. So it was, it, that's, that's where I learned to fly uh, going into the aggressors and setting my mindset all the way through. That, that raises a very interesting question in my mind around leadership and attitudes towards risk and loss. So my understanding from talking to people like you and Obi-Wan and, and so on is that at that time, if you were a wing commander, you lost a jet, you're out. You were, you were going to lose your job. Um, and that obviously doesn't then tally particularly well with four fours going out, getting into spins, and, and having to deploy their drag chute to recover. Uh, so, so what was the what were the leadership qualities that you were seeing around that kind of thing? And and were you at this point starting to think about your own career, your own potential as a leader? Uh, and were you starting? I mean, this, this is a conversation about you molding yourself into who you who you became. What were the influences you were seeing? Um, around that you know it was weird because early on like in the f4 and, and really even as an aggressor uh I, I never really thought past that assignment and in the f4 and in the aggressors when i came out of the, even out of the aggressors going to the f15 all that time before that time had just been i'm just gonna fly my ass off and and, and work real hard but there was no doubt in my mind that if you lost an airplane as a wing commander or a squadron commander, you were gone. So uh, learning to fly that airplane, 90%, being able to fly the F-4, and if it goes out of control, recognize out of control. If it spins, recognize the spin. Do what's required to recover and bring that thing back that, the, that everybody bought us was I didn't care and nobody else cared. You know, if you cared and you, you know, there were wings flying the F-4. There were wings when I was an F-4 guy. There were wings, other uh, bases flying the F-4 where wing commanders would put an airspeed limit on the airplane. Can't go any slower than 250, period. Well, we know that was bullshit. 
you know, you got to go slower than that just to land the damn thing. So we knew that, you know, they're just pulling a number out of their butt. Okay. And so uh, what they did was some of these guys would limit what you were allowed to do with the airplane to the point that you, there was just no way to lose it. You know, shit, you just go out, do intercepts and come back. You know, when I was an aggressor, one of the most, believe this, when I was an aggressor, one of the most feared uh, things for a wing commander, oh crap, tech is sending uh, the aggressors here for two weeks. <sighs> Thinking that what we're trying to do is come out there and reinvent tactics and everything and let you uh, get fired. No, we were coming out there to give you a platform to fly against. And we, we knew before we came at what level that you were, you know, we knew you're an air to air wing or an air to ground wing. And we would cater what we would do and the program that we would give to you to allow you to improve yourself. We weren't trying to make you, you know, spin airplanes in and all that kind of stuff. But I will tell you though, like at Eglin and even at Karat, there were, there were limitations that were put on uh, put on you as far as uh, maybe what you were allowed to fly against or uh, uh, things like that, that sometimes you just did what you did. You just did what you did. Mm -hmm. But when you would land and that drag shoot door was open, Never once did I have a DO or somebody come marching up to the squadron, come walking in there and jump in my case. Where's your drag shoot? Well, it's out in the middle of, you know, the Gulf. Never. So there was the uh, cosmetic side of them and the realistic side of them. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you. I remember driving into Eglin one day, driving in the parking lot. We were getting ready for an ORI where, you know, we're going to have a four-day ORI, big deal for the wing commander and all this kind of stuff. And on the side of wing headquarters was his name in spray paint, and it said, such and such sucks. Now, that's how our ORI started. <laughs> huh? So, yeah, that's how it started. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, I don't ever want to be like that. You know, I want these guys, uh, everybody I fly with or fly against or whatever, I want them to be able to fly 90% of this airplane or more. But was, there, was there not some justification, though, for the the trepidation of a wing commander hearing that you guys were coming on your roadshow? Because there is that infamous email. I'm not, not email because it didn't exist at the time. Infamous speech. I think it was by General Fisher around, you know, the cancer in the Air Force. And were you yeah. there for that? What well, can you tell oh, us yeah. the story behind it and the, the repercussions? Yeah. Well, the, when the program, like when the aggressors first started, it, everything was fine. I mean, we were doing fine and, and we never, ever, uh, went somewhere and had an accident pinned on us. You know, we had had one midair, uh, an F-4 plowed into one of our guys, and, and uh, uh, everybody was lost. Um, but the command as a whole, uh, like from 76 to 78, um, it just started 
losing a lot of airplanes. Red flag came into town. Uh, all of a sudden, we've got all this range space and we're going to go out there and we're going to run around at 100 feet and drop bombs and, and uh, we're going to do it with guys right out of RTU that have 50 hours in the airplane and we're going to, I mean, we're just going to be heroes. And I mean, it was back in that time frame. It was, and these accidents are all happening at Nellis. So you fly in to see more Johnson as an aggressor with a 57th fighter weapon wing patch on your shit. Uh, we're not happy. You know, I don't need you around here. You're teaching my guys how to kill themselves or whatever. But uh, we were dropping airplanes uh, out on the range. We're dropping them in the pattern. I mean, you know, I can remember sitting in a damn briefing in, at Nellis as an aggressor, getting ready to go fly with the F-4 weapon school, and you hear, heard the damn ejection seat go off in the pattern. Boom! Oh, there goes one. Walk out and look. Yo, there he is. So it, it was it, it was almost to the point we used to joke about it, saying, if you go outside, just have a hard hat on, you know, because they're going to be, they're, you know, I mean, that it was just the way it was. And uh, so the service was going through a, a, a quandary there, trying to really figure out uh, what's going on? You know, how, why are we losing all these airplanes and this and that? And so um, it, we were able to discover that, well, what it is, is what you're doing at your home place is so limited that you're not ready when you're coming here to Red Flag to get your first 10, quote, combat sorties. And that's what Red Flag was. Red Flag was originated to give you, uh, get rid of buck fever and give you your first 10 combat sorties. So you flew uh, a whole week of, you know, inert ordnance, and then the second week, about half the week, regular uh, inert, and then you drop live and this and that, and the aggressors were out there. And, and so it was, it was, but it, it was still a lot of, a lot of wrecks. I mean, a lot of wrecks. And, um, you know, you would take and see a weapon school grad uh, have a wreck or be leading a flight that had a wreck and it would just go Nellis guy, Nellis guy, Nellis guy. I mean, there was, there were times when you'd walk around with a weapon school patch on and a wing commander, he, he did not want to see, there were wing commanders who would tell you, don't wear that around here. Right. And I remember a four star had to tell a wing commander I worked for one time by message. He can wear that patch in lieu of that wing patch. That's a 3510 patch. He can wear that patch because they felt like you were going to risk their career, you know, but I, I think it was more training. Again, it was, it was people flying F4s using 10% of it. Did, did, I, I thought that you were sort of, um, you know, you had your tails docked effectively. You, you, I thought, you know, sort of Fisher had put you under very heavy um, restraint in terms of what you could do and you ended up doing loads and loads of BFM for a period of time and and that was another contributor to what oh, this is what I've been told at least that this was another contributor to your dominance in in that particular yeah. area the 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 the, uh, the uh, I was in the f-15 weapons school at that time okay okay what happened it, uh, during that time there, there were times like when, when General Fisher talked to us and gave us the cancer of the eye, uh, cancer in the eye of tack and all that kind of stuff. 
um, we quit doing road shows in the aggressors and uh, we flew only against the weapon school, the F4 weapon school at the time, the F-15 weapon school wasn't there, the A-7 weapon school, you know, they didn't do it there. And so um, we just really uh, flew against ourselves and we started getting the F-5s. And so the aggressors quit doing road shows and they just supported red flag. The incident you're talking about when uh, tactical air command said, that's it, breaks on, was, uh, and I'll talk about it, was a, a midair that we had in the weather school, <laughs> uh, which, you know, it's just, a, I'll talk about it sometime with you, you know, or I, I'll tell you about it now. But as a result of that thing, TAC said, that's it. No more, no more dissimilar, no more nothing. It's just F-15, F-15, F-4, F-4, F-5, F-5, and that's it. And so, and that happened in the middle of one of our classes. Mm. Oh, done. And they just stopped everything and said, we're going to, we're just going to have to take a, a a rehab here and figure out what, what the hell's going on, what the hell's going on. And, and they used our accident as, as the basis and it, it had nothing to do with it. You want me to tell you about it? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. And then we'll come back to the other thing. Yeah. Well, what happened was in the weapon school, we were constantly going through uh, syllabus validations, even with students. Hey, we're going to, we're thinking about adding this phase and this and that, and, but we need to qualify it with the students and then submit it to TAC and get it blessed that, yeah, that's a good, that's a good course and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the, one of the courses was <laughs> a friend of mine and I, a uh, very dear friend, uh, had a, a phase that we thought was going to be really cool. And it was, it was um, mixed force training. The F-16 was brand new. Okay, it was just coming out. 422 had them. So what it was, was we wanted to validate a syllabus where we had two F-15s and two F-16s. And we would marry them together, you know, put them behind each other, side, side. And uh, the F-16 community was trying to show that, hey, look, even though it's an F-16, it has an air-to-air capability, it has a good radar and this and that. So we had a mixed force syllabuses that we were validating. And this particular day, I was the soft, the supervisor of flying, and I was in the tower. And uh, my buddy and his student taxis out, and uh, Joe Bob Phillips and his wingman taxi out, and they're my mixed force guys. So I'm following through the freaks. Ain't nobody else flying. It's like 6:20 in the morning, going out to Elgin, and then about seven F5s come out after them. And the deal was, we don't want us blue force to know how many red force there were. So that's why they come out second. Everybody takes off. So they're out there and I'm listening to, to uh, Bobby and, and everybody and they start this engagement and I'm just looking over towards them. You can see it from where I'm in the tower. It's only like 40 miles to the area. It's one of the closest areas to Nellis. And we're, uh, you know, I'm watching and listen to GCI and GCI said, well, you know, can't see them. They're blind. You know, they're down this and that, this and that. I hear Bobby talking about uh, 
certain contacts and, and the wing, uh, his student talking about contacts. Bobby's on the right. Uh, Denny's on the left. Clyde Bob and, and uh, his wingmen are about 9,000 feet in trail. They're flying like a deep six box. Then this particular day it was going to be, we're going to drop these lawn darts off at the merge and blow through it and then come back and pick up some stragglers and then, and then get out. A lot of talk going on the radio about who's looking at who and this and that and this and that and this and that. And um, I'm, I'm looking at the area just out of the tower window and I see a huge fireball. I go, damn. Then I hear Clyde or Joe Bob. He starts screaming, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off, midair, midair, midair. And I go, oh, shit. And uh, I turn around in the phone, just all the lights light up from the wing commander on. And I'm going, oh, shit. So we have this wreck. And uh, this guy was a very, very... Close friend of mine. It's the same guy that my flight commander at Edna. And uh, so uh, once we try and get everything, airplanes are coming back and this and that over a period of a couple hours, the stand-in squadron commander in the weather school, because we had lost our squadron commander, he had hit the ground. That's another story. Well, stand-in. Uh, and I, he knew how close Bobby and I were. So we go to the school that his wife teaches at. And so we go down there, walk in in our flight suits and the secretary sitting there. And I said, I need to speak to so-and-so. She breaks down and she saw the wreck. She was driving to work when she saw that thing. So, but didn't know it was Bobby. When that wreck happened, it shut. That was it. Tack said, we're done. We're done. And they just hit, boom. Speculation was they were flying like this. The guy that they plowed into each other was coming in very, very high. And uh, Wingman uh, had a contact with him. Bobby is looking low. <laughs> they start drifting towards each other. And they figure that the high gomer it, with the F-5 nose being real long does not see the F-15. He sees a, a lawn dart. And they hit, he hits just behind the cockpit and it just atomizes both of them just behind the cockpit. And um, Clyde's tape, we look at it that night and he's right behind Bobby when it wrecked and you see the, oof, and you see the engines go by and pieces. And I mean, it was, it was, shit and by noon it was over yeah. you guys uh, and it was as if it was like it was an accident it wasn't something we breathed hey let's go out there and have a midair today it was just you know and we felt that the F-15 and the F-16 would be a good marriage and that day that day was the day is this was in 1980 that day was the day that came down to eat it. The F-15 and F-16 will never fly together as pairs. Two separate airplanes, two separate, no. F-15s, F-16s, mixed force training, gone. That was it. Well, that day, the Webb school became a BFM school only. That's all we did. 
against each other. So now you got a bunch of them web school instructors out there flying PFM against each other. How do you think that was going? I mean, there were close passes and guys passing out and just, you know, so we got real good at flying BFM against each other because it's nothing but instructors, flying against instructors, doing 1v1 BFM because there wasn't nothing else you could do. You want to go out and do a 2v2 intercept mission and not engage each other? Uh, no, we'll go out there and just do. That's what led to the probation period. What was what was the story behind your squadron commander hitting the ground then? Because that obviously was a contributing factor then, presumably. The schoolhouse, uh, it uh, put the flag, it, it, uh, it started in October of 76. And uh, it, the first class was in January 78. Well, the first squadron commander, <clears throat> they, were, they had uh, 18 months, 15 months to validate the syllabus. So they're, they're coming up with the syllabus and trying to validate all the missions and get them approved before the first class shows up. Most of the phases at the time that they were validating were phases from the F4 Web School because they were still around. So they said, well, we'll have this phase and, you know, we'll marry it kind of like the F, not knowing the F-15 and the F-4 are two different weapon systems, but it was new. We hadn't figured the damn thing out yet. So uh, they were out validating a sortie and uh, a mission, and it was a, a, a dissimilar sortie against the aggressors in Elgin. And uh, it was a, we wanted to do uh, dissimilar Back then, dissimilar air combat training, DACT, had a floor of 5,000 feet AGL. You couldn't go below 5,000 feet. That was the hard deck. Everything had to be above 5,000. <clears> if <throat> you went below that, it was immediate knock it off. And, you know, hey, you know, you can't go below it. That's the new ground. Well, they wanted to have one where they uh, said, we'll do all altitude dissimilar training. But when you're below 5,000 feet, you can only do 180 degrees of turn. And then both of your rocket wings and you just press on and then you climb back up and do the thing. That's what they were doing. And uh, he uh, came down a ridgeline, saw the guy, pulled, rolled over, pulled, and uh, only did half a split S. Didn't get it all. Too low, too fast. Could have done it in the F-4. Yeah. But the F-15, just blower going, you know, it's just tangent to the earth. You know, it's just hauling ass. And he mm. just ran out of room. Was, was there, in your mind then, an understandable element to the reaction after Bobby was killed in that the midair? With those two things in mind, the history of the aggressors up until that point, do you, in some senses, sympathize or or not sympathize, empathize maybe with the leadership for making the decision that they did? I felt that, okay, uh, I mean, I, I, I used to, you know, I used to equate it to <clears throat> NASCAR. You know, I'd say, okay, let's put a um, hundred mile an hour limit on NASCAR. See how that works. They're still going to have wrecks. I mean, shit, they'll just be slower, but they're still going to have them. You know, you can't now. Uh, so I, 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 that's, I equated it to NASCAR. I said, 
and, and I'm a big Formula One guy. I love Formula One. And I go, so uh, why don't we just have Andretti only go 110 miles an hour, not 160? That'll help. Well, you're still going to have wrecks. They're just going to be slower. And so uh, our and, and what we used to say was, you know, that the best thing we could do, so we're not going to have wrecks, but we look pretty good, is just leave them on the ground. Just walk around and look at them, bang them, you know, sit in them, but don't move. Don't put it in the ground. But, I mean, you're going to have accidents hmm. when you put a lot of airplanes in a piece of space. And so they just said, well, okay, we'll just put one out there at a time, 1v1, and we'll see how that works hmm. while we figure out how to fix this. So, so they never you, fixed it. They didn't. They just yeah. no. They just eventually, gradually, earned our way back into it. Hmm. Like <clears throat> a couple months go by. Okay, uh, you can do one v one against another airplane, dissimilar. So one v one against the FI. Now you can do two v two. Okay. Now you can do, but don't be putting two airplanes. Um, they got to be the same kind, same kind over here. Uh, cosmetics, uh, no more tactical call signs. Right. Don't be cut. Don't be saying Paco on the radio or Buffalo or somebody like that. Call signs only. Raven two, uh, come right. You know, Raven one or what's my call sign today? Oh shit, I'm even four. You know, come on. So no more call. None of that. We're gonna get some discipline by changing the way we talk on the radio. Maybe that'll help. You know, and they they listen to a tape from that wreck, and they're you know they're using they're they're talking to each other, which they assumed was not professional. Mm-hmm. Who are you looking at? Okay, uh, yeah, no, no, no. You know, how how do you expect to fly with voice recognition? Uh, well, I have for their whole life. You know, why do I have to say Raven too? You know, I'm out here with him. It just, it just, but we slowly got back into it. And then the weapon school <laughs> uh, went through a period of time where we didn't put students through. We mm-hmm. augmented Luke. So <laughs> uh, you could go, when it was time for you to go to RTO or RTU, in the F-15, like you're coming out of the F-4 or you're coming out of a staff job and you're going to get called in the F-15, you could go to Luke or you could come to Nellis. And, so you do like a B course or a TX course? Didn't oh, yeah, shit. Yeah. A TX course, we called it. We had a tub, so you could fly around the back seat, touch your gun, man, nice touchdown. Oh, yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so we would do uh, what we call RTU-TX course, but the problem was we'd get out there and do BFM and we'd go right back to our mentality of weapon school. You know, they'd be shitty because it's their third BFM hop. We're not used to that. We're used to getting proficient people in here and we're just climbing all over them and you're stopping and going, you know, uh, hey, Raven, do one. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Did you go to that brief I gave this morning? Yeah, well, do some of it. You know, so you're doing that in the radio and you're just – and then they're sending feedback saying, yeah, yeah, these guys aren't nice. And, you know, so it, it, it was a very uh, hostile period of time. We were pretty pissed. Yeah. And, we and- had, and then we got a squadron commander. 
Guy shows up. No idea who he is. Never seen him before. Not a graduate. So he's he come on in the building school, but he's not a graduate of the, of the school. Never been to Nellis. Comes to us from the Pentagon. Walks in the building. The guy walks in, brand new fly suit and all that shit. And I said, hey, how you doing? Can I help you? You know? He goes, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a, I'm a new F-15 weapons school commander. I look at his name tag and I go, oh, they call you the Red Baron? Yeah, they call me the Red Baron. Sometimes they call me Ace, but they call me the Red Baron. I'm going. Right after that happens, one of my buddies who wears a size 16 boot. Now, no, Buffalo, big boy. Buffalo Myers? Huh? Buffalo Myers? <laughs> yeah. Buffalo walks out of the barnyard. He walks out and he walks out behind me. And I said, hey, Buffalo, this is so-and-so. It's our new squadron commander. They call him the Red Baron. <laughs> Buffalo, in his way of, looks at him and goes, I ain't fucking calling nobody a Red Baron. <laughs> okay. Or Ace. So I suggest you get yourself a name you want to be called, or I'll just call you like Preparation H. How about that? <laughs> That's, that's, that's the way it was. Yeah. How, how did, uh, I mean, don't, don't name him, um, but how did this commander fare? Did he? I mean, was oh, he, no, it, it, it was a, it was a chocolate mess. It was, <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole deal was not only is he going to be that, but you're going to put him through the schoolhouse. So you'll get him recalled in the airplane or get him called in the airplane. And then you're going to put him through with a, we'll put him in a student class. Nah, he was always too busy, don't have time. And then eventually he got promoted and left. Really? We went to, to his house. We went to this guy's house one time, like two weeks after, after he showed up. Oh, it's a Friday night, going to have a little get-together with the guys. And there's only seven of us, you know, plus our wives. And I remember I knock on the door and he opens the door, him and his wife, and they're dressed alike. <laughs> and it catches me by surprise. My wife at the time goes, no, puts her hand in my back. And I go, hey, how you doing? Meets his wife. And he says, got some beer in the kitchen. So I walk into the kitchen and the is standing there, Bouze is standing there. And I go, uh, he goes, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and it ain't 10 minutes later. Ding dong. I said, oh, somebody else is here. Door opens. And all I hear is, what the fuck are you all wearing? And it's Buffalo. <laughs> Buzzy goes, oh, shit. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yeah. His name became, his name became Teenager. That's it. Buffalo says, Teenager from now on. But he, he stayed maybe eight months and left. Huh? Yeah. That's really yeah. yeah, it was perfect. Perfect. You you um we're sort of obviously going where the, the conversation takes us, but but to be clear, you arrived at the, the, the weapons school as a student initially. You were in the second class, I think. Um what what did you find there in terms of because uh, you've just said, well, you know, the first class they were sort of in seventy six, they were busy developing the, the um yeah. the syllabus and so on and so forth. But what did you find 
as a student and what were you intent on delivering as an instructor? Uh, when I showed up as a, a student, the school uh, first class was in January of 78. My class was in August of 78. Five of us. We lost one accident. And um, uh, every instructor I had known, I had flown against them. Some of them were from the F-4 Weapons School. Some of them had been previous aggressors. Because that 18 months before the first class, they were putting themselves through too. You know, F-4 grads were, uh, Buffalo was an F-4, 414th F-4 guy. So he's getting recalled and not recalled in an airplane, but spinning up for the new syllabus and all that kind of stuff. So to tell you the truth, when I showed up, it was like uh, homecoming. You know, uh, like all of them are going, damn, it's about time you got here. I thought you were going to come in the first class. I said, well, shit, I'd only been flying the airplane four months. You know, I didn't have the time because you had the prerequisites. And the wing commander and the DO, where I was based at the time, I was based at Holloman. The, you know, they had somebody else they wanted to send, you know, or, oh, no, you all didn't even pick anybody. He said, well, yeah, we didn't know who they were, but we know who you are. So it was, <laughs> it was that. But when I got there, you know, the, my flight commander was the same flight commander, and, and I had Buffalo, and I had Buzzy, and I had, you know, Bobby, and they were all there. And so I didn't want to embarrass them. Mm. I didn't know the other four guys in my class. I had, I had no, I'd never seen them before in my life. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, I can I, I remember two of them, but I just didn't know. But all of a sudden now I'm in the F-15 weapons school and uh, I'd only been gone from Nellis a year and a half. So there were still a lot of people there that knew I was there. I'd, be, I'd go to the club. What are you doing? Oh, I'm in the student in the web school. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for you when, I'm, uh, when we're flying and this and that and this and that. So when I got there, I said, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the outstanding graduate. I'm going to, I'm going to win the flying award period in the discussion. And that's, that's how I did it. Okay. And I mean, you know, and I did, but I said, that's, so, so what what is what was necessary for you to do that then um one of the things that i'm sure you'll talk about um at some point in this conversation is you know study being in the vault those sorts of things but is that you just go out and you spend lots of time preparing before the actual briefing itself and then you do yeah. lots of time debriefing what do you need to do i used to walk the briefs you know when it was my turn to brief i would walk you know, I would fly that flight in my head, laying in the queue room. You know, I'd fly that flight in the head, figuring out what I'm going to do, what am I going to do, what's he going to do, what I'm going to do, what's he going to do, you know. And and I had I knew the personalities of these guys. So I knew, because I'd flown against Buffalo 100 times. So I, you know, was an aggressor. So I knew what Buffalo liked to do. I knew what Hostile Man liked to do. I knew what Buzzy liked. So I knew, you know, and uh, before I left Holloman, my uh, weapons officer who got me into the F-15, basically, Murray Sloan, Snake Sloan, he uh, and the DO were both grads from F-4 and F-100 school. Before I went to weapons school for three months, 
we took two airplanes, took all the tanks off of them and all that bullshit. And all we did was fly BFM and stuff in clean airplanes. So when I went, I was, I was prepared to be there to, uh, to show them what I could do in this airplane. Did they have the same preparation then, do you think? Is it, was it a level playing field? Uh, not that it really matters, but I'm just curious to know whether or not. You know, the other students? Yeah, did everybody approach things the same? I mean, you, you know, you're not unique in the Air Force in thinking, meeting someone saying, I've got, thinking I've got more talent than you, I'm going to beat you, and if you beat me, it's because you get lucky. I mean, so is everybody doing the same thing? Is there a standardized approach? Because I think there is nowadays. There is now. And there was while I, after I came back as an instructor, but early on when I was just there as a student in a new class, they just needed to graduate student. They just needed to have F-15 graduates, you know? And so they were still, even in my class, we were still validating some missions, you know? I mean, I can remember in the middle of my class, they said, Hey, guess what? Tomorrow, we're going to evaluate high fast flyer intercepts. We're going to fly against an SR-71 that's going to come through here at 80th Grand, and we're going to do these fly-up missions and see if we can uh, knock him down. I'm going, damn, you know, and so we'll see how that works for you. You know, how you think it worked? It didn't work worth a shit, but we did them, you know, and so we're going to do this and that and this and that. So there was that, and, and as we began to formalize the class, like after I got there, I, I left in um, – I graduated in December of uh, 78, and then I went back in October of 79. So I quick turned right back. And it was those guys who basically talked to MPC through the wing commander and said, we know this guy. He's, he's the, you know, he's the outstanding graduate from the class. At the time, I had been named the Tactical Air Command F-15 Instructor of the Year. So they pinned that little thing. And he said this and that. So he said, okay. So they get me to come right back. Just quick turn right back to Nellis as an instructor. Mm-hmm. And when we got back, uh, they start by saying, you know, we need to start formalizing a little of this process. So we came up with prerequisites, flying prerequisites, <laughs> and reading prerequisites. And then started getting heavy into the academics as well as the flying. So we had flying prerequisites that would go out to the wing commander and the squadron commander. When your guy is selected, this is what he needs to have. And and if he showed up with his flight records and did not have that, TAC said, we're going to send him home. But we're not going to send all these different levels of proficiency to this schoolhouse and waste our time and money and not have it be a level playing field. So, oh, yeah. And we did send them home. Right. Yep, we did. Show up, not have it, boop, gone. Reading stuff and the academics, shit. I mean, that was just you saying, yeah, I read it. Okay, we're going to know here in a minute, you know, when you take the, when you get taught academics <clears throat> and you take your tests. In 81, the weapon school, uh, the flying phase was pretty much in concrete. We were, we were kicking ass and taking names in the five. And the academics were kind of a side note. In 81, academics came level. Same. And in fact, the schoolhouse, we divided the instructors. We had 
an F-15 academic section and an F-15 flying section. Everybody was an F-15 instructor and flew with the students. But these people, you know, their primary job was academics, tough academics. I mean, rebuilding F-4, um, AIM-7s, rebuilding AIM-9s, such that, I mean, being able to go to Raytheon in the AIM-7 school, the AIM-7 class, go to Raytheon and be able to sit with those engineers and talk about, you know, what what do we see with failures and this and that and this. And that. I mean, tough academics. So it became very, academics became very uh, big deal. And then the flying phase. I mean, you if, when you taught academic, I talked to Great White Hope or the AIM-7 and I taught that. And when I taught that, you had to have blue pants, blue shirt. <laughs> you look like you were in the Air Force. And then you'd change and go fly. And the students, the way they their schedule was, is all of them flew at one time in the mornings. All of them went to class together. It wasn't used to when I got there, first got there. It was, hey, Paco, we're flying. Uh, so-and-so didn't get his uh, – uh, aircraft handling or spin characteristics briefing yesterday. So you need to, okay, take him in a flight room, sit down. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about how they build the, you know, uh-uh. it became formal, formal. And you had to, you had to sit in front of these academians like PME or professional military education people and, and qualify to be an instructor, you know, well, you know, your mannerism and, you know, and that was getting to be a bit much. There was a lot of, uh, no, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. But so it, it became very, very uh, as important as the flying side. And there became two, uh, two awards, academic award and the flying award. All right. Now, who'd want to win the academic award? <laughs> but, I mean, God did. <laughs> but, you know, I can remember taking my test going, I'm going to miss half these some bitches. You know, if 70 is passing, I'm going to get a 71. I don't even want to have that egghead award. <laughs> I want the flying award, but I don't want that other one. But, yeah, it, academics became very, very um, a big deal. Big deal. There's there's some logic, isn't there, to if, – if you get spend all this time training somebody – to become an expert to that degree and the objective then is for that person to go back to a frontline squadron and share that knowledge and help them weaponeer and help them to develop tactics and put plans together and create the best wingman they can and the best flight lead they can and those things you've got to have then the correct characteristics to teach i mean you know it goes back to what you're yeah. saying about being humble and approachable and then credible um, right. but i you know i, I understand it's not always the case that weapons school graduates come out from Nellis mm-hmm. with the ability then to transfer that knowledge. You know, they don't right. necessarily have those skills. Yeah, you had we had our embarrassments. You know, yeah, yeah we had that. You know, when when we changed and started, I tell you, we wanted to be able to evaluate <coughs> uh, credibility and uh, the ability to teach. You know not just flying, but academics. The students, uh, when I was there as an instructor, we started a program where you have to write what we call a thesis. Come up with a a subject that you want to write on. 
It'll be a 20 page program and then you have to qualify it and justify it. So you tell us what subject area you want to do and we'll uh, listen to your argument. We'll say, okay, write that program or write that paper. And those papers were published in TAC Attack, which was a magazine that went throughout Tactical Air Command. And so uh, there were there were papers written by just plain old slick wing students that changed air to air tactics. And one of the premier papers was F-pole tactics, crank tactics. This guy studied, you know, how long and this and that, and he wrote that paper. And it changed the way we shot Great White Hopes and, and responded and stuff. Can I mean, that's the type of stuff. Expound on that, uh, Parker. Can you, can you describe what F-pole is, why it's significant, and, yeah. and what you do with it? Yeah. Let's say uh, if two jets are, are closing on each other, and they both shoot at each other at the same time, there's uh, the only difference in when those two missiles or when, uh, let's say he doesn't even shoot, it's just another airplane and F-15 and just a, a MiG flying along and you fire a gray white hope. And let's say you fired it at max range, 25 miles for whatever dumbass reason, but you shot it out there at five miles. The maximum range that that airplane would be from you when that missile hit is seven miles if you just continued into and that's what they call f-pole range where does the missile impact the airplane relative to your nose position well what he did is he studied the aim seven flight boost sustained acceleration on a uh, uh, mach 1 launcher and a mach 1 1.1 target and he looked at where are those ranges. If I shot at 25 miles, where would it hit? If I shot at 20 miles, if I shot at 10 miles, if I shot at 12 miles. And then he started saying, now, how do I make that distance farther? And what he said was, what if we're not going at each other? What if we're going like this? And so he did all these graphs showing that if I shot an A7 at 25 miles, and the FO range was 7.2 miles when it engaged this MIG. If when I shot at 25 miles, I offset my heading 60 degrees, which was the limit of the radar to still provide guidance, that FO range was 12 miles. Then I could turn back if it missed him. So that's what that's what FO. And the F quote FO maneuver was a fox right to the edge and delay the range from the bandit to the F-15. And it also provided, if the bandit were to shoot at you, it increased his time of flight also. So that's that's what it was. So they, they came up with, you know, we had uh, the M-7 had a, what they called an expanded rod warhead. It was, you know, the old uh, uh, carpenter things that unfolded, yeah. Well, that's what it looked like, like wrapped around. Accordion so type. it was, yeah, and it had two of them on there, and they were like that. And and um, uh, when it detonated, it went out in a concentric circle. And at forty feet, eighty percent of them were still connected, <laughs> and they were they went at uh, about fifty six hundred feet per second. And the reason I know all this shit is I taught the Great White Hope. All right, so it, it went out there. When we were shooting and running these intercepts against the SR-71, because we were trying to figure out how to knock down a fox bat, when we were doing the SR-71, 
we would, I would, I can remember looking at V sub C, you know, closing velocities coming down the radar against these guys. And I was going, damn, that's 8,000. So it's going to go boom and it's going faster than this damn warhead can even do it. So one of those students wrote a paper about how to redesign warhead such that it was a three-dimensional instead of a two-dimensional, three-dimensional. And he actually went to Raytheon and sat with engineers and, and did it. That, that was the kind of emphasis we got on the flying side of it. So the students were extremely busy, not just flying, but academic. And the more we got into the academics, uh, the, the high rollers really liked uh, the academics, like seeing us walking around in blue pants and blue shirts and stuff like that. And it took some time to make sure that the flying phase, because it was not unusual to bust a guy. We had to put a red thing around this grade sheet and send it to the, all the way up to the wing commander and let him look at it. And sometimes you get a question like, how's he doing in academics? Uh, I don't know, but his grade sheet, all it says is still no threat to MIGs. That ought to be a hint to you right there. You know, I don't know how he's doing. I don't know if he made a hundred or not. I'm just saying he's still not a threat to MIGs. So, and so academics became a, a big, big deal. One thing I've often heard, it's, I love hearing you refer to it as the Great White Hope. Maybe you can explain. That's what it was, 510 that, pounds. Just, just low PK? I mean, was, was it that, that the issue that uh, you didn't have much confidence in it? I called it the Great White Hope because it was white. And uh, when we uh, made the one for the F-15, the F model, it was just a carryover from the E-2, which came off the F-4. And its maneuverability and stuff like that was just uh, wasn't there. And But it, it progressed to the F and, and M and, and some others, but uh, it got very, uh, it got very formidable. It became uh, pretty formidable. But uh, to tell you the truth, when I called it the Great White Hope, I, I just did that to get people's attention. I mean, I would, I would in class, okay, on day one, okay, we're going to, today we're going to talk about, and I had one in there that was all opened up, Raytheon, you know, gave it to me. Today we're going to talk about 510 pounds, Great White Hope. And the students would kind of laugh, and now I had them. Yeah. Instead of saying, we're going to talk about the 87 uh, that's uh, on the F-15. Really? You know, I know what it is, and I know what it hangs on. Well, if you said Great White Hope or... You know, and Stuckey, who taught the AIM-7, or the uh, AIM-9, he'd go, okay, today we're going to talk about the AIM-9L. Uh, and basically, it's an easy missile to understand. It tracks the skin on your nose. That's why it comes in the front, you know. So they listen up. So it was all that kind of stuff. And I've always called it the Great White Hope. I taught the Great White. I taught the AIM-7. And I taught... Uh, Aircraft handling characteristics, why the F-15 is, is made like it is, and why does it depart opposite the direction of the turn and all that type of stuff and how you recover and all that. Hold, hold that, Parker, because that's where we'll go next. But but one quick question on the AIM-7 before we go there. Um, is it true then that, that it was designed to fuse at the cockpit? 
that's one thing I've read before. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but that expanding it, rod it, warhead. And and, and it, it seems doesn't the A nine is a uh, personnel killer. It's got a small warhead, and it's it's designed to to hurt somebody. The Great White Hope is designed to cause a lot of aircraft damage because after it detonates, and like I said, it's at 40 feet, 80% of these rods are still connected. And at 90 feet, 10% of them are still connected. And they're about that long. And they just rip shit up. But the idea, and then after it detonates and does all that, some millisecond later, a zirconium disc, which is hotter than the surface of the sun, starts flailing around in there and set lighting, you know, hair teeth and eyeballs. So it's it's designed to knock down uh an AIM-9, you could still uh, take some damage with an AIM-9 and bring the airplane home if it didn't kill you. Let's say it hit the tail end or something. Just like in Southeast Asia, F-4s come home with atolls, damage, and stuff like that. If a Great White Hope went off next to you, next to your airplane, it was ugly. It, you're not bringing that asset home. I used to show a tape of a live fire because in the weapons school, we, we live fired. Every student, live-fired AIM-7s, AIM-9s, guns, and so at Point Magoo, but uh, fired a live Great White Hope against a T-38 drone, and it comes in there, and this, wow, and you see this thing go off in slow motion, boom, and the T-38 comes out the other side, and all the students are going, oh, look at that, and then it just starts getting longer because <laughs> it is just cut into pieces. So it, it goes in, the thing goes off, and then as it comes out, it just goes, it stretches. And you go, what the hell? And it's just, it just cuts it into slices. So it's built to knock an airplane down. The AIM-9 is uh, meant to incapacitate it for that particular mission, but you could go home if it didn't detonate to the cockpit. Hmm. The AIM-9 did guide and try to foot pull about 20 feet forward of its heat source where you're sitting. Yeah. Gray White Hope, it had a forward looking laser and it just said, there it is, ready, ready, boom. And so it just would try to go anywhere from the cockpit to the tail end and just slice. So, so tell us then about the handling characteristics of the F-15. It's interesting you talk about BFM. And, and again, if anybody's watching who hasn't watched the Sly McGill interview, worth listening to that because he does a sort of comparison, not really a comparison, but he talks about the difference between that and the, and the Hornet. And um, he's very complimentary about the Eagle, you know. But but what was your, you know, what, what was advanced handling characteristics? Why does the F-15 have that auto roll that you described? What, why is it designed the way it is? Why does it have camera on the wing that it, the way that it does? What would you yeah, tell people the, about it? You know, uh, you know, people need to remember, if you look back at Hornets and F-16s, there were always changes, always modifications. The F-15 <clears throat> airframe never changed, never changed. The wing on the F-15 is a conically cambered wing. It, 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 it means that it, uh, it's thinner in the front and fatter in the back. Okay. So they just took the wing and flipped it over. 
used to the wings are fatter in the run thinner in the back you know and it's so what they did is they flipped the damn thing over so that the air as it separated began to separate on the stall it hit a fatter spot and it would smooth out so it gave it the characteristics that it had as a 58,000 pound airplane at combat weight of being able to be as nimble as a anything and or that was aft core thickening and it was conically cambered which meant the wing was straight and then it, it gradually tilted as it got to the wingtips. The reason it would do that was as the angle of attack got more and more and more, it, the relative air hitting the camber of the wing, as it changed, it would delay the stall so that it wasn't just running off the end of the stall. So the airplane, a stall in the F-15, when you pulled up, it never stalled and just, oh, yeah, it just... Uh, eh until it pointed down and then it just start flying again. Now it had some weird flight characteristics. One of them was auto roll. And, and, and I'll tell you, you know, the high rollers all thought the auto roll was a uh, out of control maneuver. It was not an out of control maneuver because it was, it was a maneuver that you could fly it into and then just fly it out of. It was a prohibitive maneuver, but during the very first sortie of the weapons school student, uh, sometimes he would see uh, what the auto roll looked like and uh, how you got out of it, you know, depending on who he flew with, you know. But uh, what the auto roll was, was the airplane, and it was in a very small angle of attack uh, realm. It would uh, blank the tail out. The wings, that's why we had two tails, was to try to minimize uh, blanking. If you put one tail, it had to be twice as tall and twice as heavy. So that's why we had two tails, but you could still blank it out with the wings. <laughs> and the differential stabilizer based on uh, differential fuel in the internal wings would start to say, hey, I'm trying to keep you stable here. And it would start a roll. And as soon as it started to roll, the rudders, the yaw damper, Instead of using the rudder in the floor, it would, the flight controls would say, oh, this is what he's trying to do. And so it would enter what was called an auto roll. The nose would rotate around 20 degrees and it would just, it, it's like a slow auto roll. I mean, a slow aileron roll. And it would do it until it accelerated past about 250, 260 knots, and then it would just stop. And you, so you could let go of it and it'd be fine. But what you didn't want to do was try to roll out of it. The only way they ever spun the F-15 at McDonnell Douglas and Greg Larson, auto roll it, full aileron opposite the roll, spin. Hmm. Now, when the F-15 spins, it's ugly. You know, uh, they spun it from 30,000 feet, and the average time for recovery was 10,000, 12,000 feet. So you spend that some bitch, you know, where we normally fight, it's going to be a ride and then jump, you know. But because the auto roll <laughs> could be misinterpreted by somebody who doesn't fly the F-15 and just reads it in a book, uh, uh, he considered it a, out of control and we weren't allowed to fly uh, intentional out of control maneuvers, but it was not an out of control maneuver whatsoever. When 
there was an accident at Langley and uh, where an airplane was lost due to out of control. And uh, the weapon school grad, but you know, he jumped out of this thing. Thank God. He's, you know, Tony Mahoney. Oh, really? <laughs> and so they were going after him hard. They were going after him really hard. And the wing commander, uh, Tony, God bless him, said, you know, when they were talking to him about, you know, what happened, how this happened, nah, 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 he was telling them what he had learned, but it was not in the Dash 1, the aircraft manual. The Dash 1 for aircraft handling was a page and a half. The shit. So he's telling them what they learned. They're going, uh, that's not, that's so immediately, pin that accident on Paco at Nellis. And so I'm at Langley, sitting in front of the wing commander and the accident board with the spin book from Edwards and a McDonnell Douglas rep, Glenn Larson, spin pilot. And I go, here's what's happening. And here's what happened. And we go through it all. And they, I mean, they're just going, holy shit. And this one star's listening and everything. And I'm going, that's why we teach this. So guys don't spin in and hit the dirt without jumping out. And then so they can recognize that. And then, well, the dash one doesn't say all that. Well, that's not my problem. You know, I didn't write the dash one, you know, some egghead wrote that. I didn't write that. I don't read that. Well, I get back to Nellis wing commander. One star calls and says, guess what? You're going to McDonnell Douglas and you got to rewrite that chapter. So that chapter went from page and a half, to 40 pages right. so it took me two months to rewrite the dash one embarrassing but so people understood how the f-15 uh flies hmm. and why it flies like it flies all the way from supersonic how do you accelerate and fly uh, the curve to go after an sr-71 you know students were crazy we're going to go after an sr-71 today here's what we're going to do we're going to He's going to orbit as soon as we hear him turn up there at Omaha and say he's coming southbound. We're going to turn away from him and just go as fast as we can till we hit nine units angle attack. And we're just going to hold nine units angle attack. And we're just going to hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. We're going to end up on our back up there and pretty close to 50. Not supposed to go above 50. If you go above 50, you owe a case. If you go above 60, you owe two cases. We never bought beer. We had cases of beer. <laughs> and so you'd end up on your back and ready to fire at this SR-71 as it's coming by. So, so that's what it was. It was teaching them. And, and the idea was for them to be able to go back during uh, early on BFM and teach aircraft handling. A lot of people, because sorties uh, are defined in uh, 5150, which is a manual that used to define how many sorties an MR pilot could, could get, uh, they didn't really ever uh, adopt aircraft handling as a uh, required sortie. Now, you'd hear a guy say, well, I'm a wingman aboard, so I went out and did some, quote, aircraft handling. Well, what the hell was that? I mean, what'd you do? I did, uh, I did some loops and shit like that. No, you did acro, you know. And one, don't go out and do true aircraft handling by yourself. Because you need somebody that knows what they're doing to, to look at the airplane. Don't do that. You know, stop. No, nope. you know, okay, that's an auto roll. 
let go of the stick, put your hands up. And that's the way I did it at schoolhouse. I would come in there and start to dust them off. And I'd go, okay, you're in an honor roll. Put your hands on the grips. I'm coming by you. I want to see them. I want to see your hands. Or if I was in a tub with them, because we have one tub, put your hands up. Don't touch shit. I want you to see what this thing's going to do. And to me, it was very important. And we did them in the 58. Mm -hmm. We did them. So they knew. Now, we did lose an airplane in the 58 due to a spin. And I remember the accident board president came to me and said, yeah, they just ain't nothing wrong with that thing. I don't know. I guess he just, no, no there's got to be something wrong with it. And so I'm looking at the pictures of it. And half of it's burned and half of it's not. I said, the internal fuel pump on that wing right there is in off. It's not transferring fuel. And the uh, foot pound pressure is exceeding about 3,000 foot pounds based on where that pump is in the center of that fuel tank relative to the fuselage uh, fuel tank. And in the spin book, if you look at it right here, it tells you if there's more than 5,000 foot-pounds of fuel imbalance, that the airplane should not exceed uh, 25 uh, units angle attack, which is what you use in the pattern. You should shoot a straight in. Keep going. Damn, how you know all this? So it's what I taught. When that happened, McDonnell Douglas went in, put fuel warnings for imbalanced fuel, internal wing fuel, and all that type of stuff. But that wasn't there until un, until you said that. They didn't know. People don't know. They don't read. They don't read that kind of stuff. People don't. They've never seen the F-15 spin book, you know, green spin book. I still got it somewhere, one of them. But they don't know. They don't know. And that's why I said 10%, no 90% of the airplane. I know everything that thing can do. There's nothing that it's going to do that I don't know what to do with it or what to expect from it. It's an airplane, you know, shit. It's like my car, you know, you can't get in your car and go, I don't have to turn that damn thing. Also, I won't, you know. How, how, what, what sort of state was the F-15 in when you were at weapons school then one of the things that you, you know, I've heard a lot about is, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, APG 60, three uh pole stopper radar yeah. uh, you know supposed to have had an electronic warfare suite um my understanding is that when it came in you know, there were problems with both of those things so yeah. was it was it the well, one, you, were dancing? you know when the airplane rolled out it didn't have any uh early warning you know it didn't have any uh, rwr radar warning system you know to to you know um warn of somebody else locked up to you or anything like that. Uh, and when the F-15 came out, <clears throat> it was such a dramatic change and advancement in everything. And the majority of the guys going into it were coming out of the F-4 or me coming out of an F-5. You talk about avionics, shit, I had a radio in it. You know, I used to carry a fuzz buster. You, you know what a yeah. fuzz buster is? Yeah. I used to carry one of them, stick it in the dash just so when I knew oh somebody's looking at me you know i mean it works you know so when it came out it was flown like an f4 hmm. it just was flown like an f4 and so um it, it was just uh, it took a while for us to to figure out you know how to use that radar effectively and 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 you know correctly hmm. it gave us so much information 
in the weapons school and at Nellis, we had a Hughes tech rep assigned to our squadron, Wayne Waller. And you could go into Wayne Waller and he'd review tapes with you and stuff like that. And you'd go, you know, the auto guns box is a 10 by 10 square. You know, it'd be cool if it were like a 20 by 20 and you could move it with say the act symbols. The next day it was in there. Wow. You know, I've cranked the F-15 at the weapons school after talking to Wayne about stuff. Hit HUD come up, it said, hi, Paco. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's how you could change it. In the F-4, you couldn't change software. It's hardware. What you get is what you got, you know. F-15, constantly. You could constantly change and upgrade, you know, stuff like that. And, and did, did the radar perform then as the brochure said it would? Uh, you, you had this intelligent capability where it present you with synthetic symbology. It would tell you what it was seeing rather than expect you to interpret it. Did it do yeah, that the, well? Well, you know, uh, it, it, the manuals uh, were extremely uh, uh, good at telling you what the symbols was. Okay, this is a target designation box, a TD box. This is a steering dot. This is, but it didn't tell you what that was relative to anything out there. <clears throat> and the problem with the, the radar is we transitioned from a pulse radar to a pulse Doppler radar. Okay, where now um, we can actually look down, you know. So uh, everybody's in the F-15 early on saying, shit, I'll get up here in the high 30s and I'll just look down and find everybody. But the, the radar beam was smaller and, and they didn't understand pulse Doppler um, uh, engineering. You know, pulse Doppler is, is the, the easiest way to explain it. It's like a train coming at you. You know, you hear it, it gets louder and louder and louder and then it gets less and less and less as it goes away. When you're in an F-15 with a pulse Doppler radar, uh, whatever is coming at you is coming at you at a higher frequency than you're transmitting because it's coming at you. Whatever's going away from you is, is coming at you at a lower frequency than what you're transmitting in uh, megahertz. When you're on the beam, a pulse Doppler radar is equal to what you are in frequency. So you're sending it out and it's coming back, same frequency. But the amplitude of that frequency is based on the target background. Well, the largest target background out there is the Earth. So when an airplane would turn into the beam against an F-15 radar, the amplitude of the Earth relative to the speed of the F-15 measured in megahertz would be, could be 40 amps, but the target all of a sudden was two because it's smaller. Boop. Oh, shit. Brake lock. So you had to understand what pulse Doppler was. And one of the longest classes in the schoolhouse was teaching uh, F-15 radar pulse Doppler. Right. People don't know what that, they don't know. We don't use pulse Doppler anymore, mm. you know, except, you know, but they had to understand what pulse Doppler was and, and what it's trying to give you, you know, and why the aspect of the intercept was so important relative to the target. So what the radar manuals and stuff 
they didn't have a warning in there. It said, warning, if the target goes into the beam, the uh, radar will break lock and you'll lose it. Oh, shit. You know, I, that'd be nice to know. But you had to know through study that that's, that's why it did its thing. And how when you saw a target start to go into the beam, oh, shit, I need to either turn away so that I'm looking at it from the ass end or turn and go the same way so that I'm keeping it from, you know, so I can keep some amplitude relative to the thing or starts going into the beam. Oh, I'm getting into a screaming ass dive because I need to get rid of the big target that's below me. That's got a lot of amplitude. And so really the airplane does have a search uh, capability, look down, shoot down, but it's still, uh, as long as the target's cooperative and coming at you or going away from you, that's fine. But if it starts playing with ground clutter, <clears throat> you need to just get down like a normal F4, get down below it and look at it from above. Mm. I'd asked you earlier about then sort of the, the technological growth, you know, that occurred through the last 50 or 60 years of, of aircraft development then. So, so was the, the, that radar and ultimately the avionics that came into the F-15, uh, you know, once it had matured or was in the process of maturing, was that then representative of a, of a quantum leaping capability? Did you have to, did you go back to the drawing board and completely revise your tactics? You're talking about missiles, Um Yeah, up until the missip point, or if you want to talk about the post missip, yeah. yeah. Okay. When missip came out, and we, we got the first one, brand new airplanes, 26 of them. I got 26 and I ended up giving them 25 back. We put one, you know, we lost one. Didn't kill nobody, but we lost one. But the Missile F-15 multi-stage improvement program addressed everything. It addressed early warning radar. It addressed uh, avionics. It addressed weapon systems. uh, And it addressed NCTR, non-cooperative target recognition, stuff that you can talk about now. But uh, it was a quantum leap when it came out. And I mean, it took me uh, a lot of study, as even as the commander, you know, sitting in the vault, looking at this thing, going out. Uh, when we first got them, I went out with, we went out with the guys and, and we did very uh, basic shit with them you know, intercepts, very uh, drew out um, plays. Okay, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want to see what it's doing to learn what this thing was going to do. How does it react to a target in the beam? What's it doing now to do that? How's it affecting the aim seven and and uh, the shoot philosophy, you know, um, uh, Believe it or not, Wayne Waller, same guy. You know, he's there in the vault with us. Going, you know, don't give me a damn shoot cue based on uh, range. Give me a shoot cue based on amplitude comparisons, you know, within two amps or whatever. And so it was a constant like that. And so when MISIP came out and, and we had a uh, – that's why, like McGill talks about, I'm sure when he came into the squadron, there wasn't nobody in the squadron. They're all in the vault. He can't go in the vault because you had to go through a pretty strenuous uh, security clearance to get your missile uh, blessing. Okay, you can come in here. And, and 
and our briefing rooms were the same way. Big, thick-ass briefing doors. You open up, go in, close them. Then you can go into your briefing rooms. They had lights that flashed saying if somebody was in there that wasn't briefed, like a high roller, red light going on, can't talk about what we're doing or, you know, this and that. So that's what came out when we got missing. But it took a lot of uh, seven days a week out there at the squadron sitting in that vault studying uh, missing. And I'll tell you as a side note, when MISSIP came out and uh, AMRAM and all that was a concept and MISSIP was going to support it and uh, some other assets, um, DR, which was the, uh, they do all the, uh, you know, spy shit. Uh, they call and said, we want you to bring five uh, F-15s to Andrews and uh, Secretary of Defense Cheney wants to fly, we want him to fly in the back and see all this magic shit that Missip has. And we want him to understand it enough that when he sits in front of a closed door session of the armed services, he can qualify and justify this black program. So the wing commander at the time comes over and says, guess what you're doing? And he gives me the paper. So I take five of us and we go to Andrews. Go to Andrews, we fly him on Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning, and then we leave, fly him twice a day. And he's in my back seat. And we did a dance of the Sugar Plum Ferry uh, scenarios with the other four. So we'd send them way out over the ocean. They'd come in, and they'd do their this and that. And I could show him trackball scan because that was new. And I could show him this and that and give him all the lingo. And then we uh, would sit in the debrief and, and we'd be debriefing stuff. And he'd go, you know, you're using slang words. And so he was learning the slang words and he was learning every, I mean, it was really pretty cool for him to be able to sit down and say, okay, right here, you're cranking, right? You're doing a crank and then you're doing, yeah, now twist this, nah, 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 nah. And so he flew with us to understand what this thing was going to be able to do so that he could qualify getting it for us. And flying him was amazing. He was such a hell of a nice guy. Flew in his blue jeans. Really? Yeah. Took him a fly suit. Got you a fly suit. You want to fly? Well, can I fly in this? Well, shit, you own all these. You fly in whatever. You fly naked if you want to, dude. I mean, doesn't bother me. But I got to fly my fly suit. You know, and there's two stars running around and shit like that. And, and I mean, it, it was it was really pretty cool. He he was really a pretty cool guy. And and you know, I can remember one day we we're taxiing out, and uh, the president's wife was saying goodbye to some Chinese lady or something like that. And I, he hears me talking on the second radio, not to the ground, but to other bros. And I go, Ooh, check out to the left. That's the president's wife. And he's going, what, what are you talking about? I said, that's the president's wife. And he goes, yeah. I said, well, we don't see the president's wife. You know, I'm looking at him in the mirror. I said, you know, so we're, we do that. And uh, day one, we're coming back. And, and I said, okay, you know, everybody take your spacing and shit like that. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, we came in here, came in on Friday and beat up the pattern. And I guess we made too much noise. And some 06 came out and just ringed my ass out for, you know, beating up the pattern. He goes, is this how you normally land? I said, no, we come in and make noise in this thing. You know, he goes, make me some noise. <laughs> so we go in and make a lot of noise. And I'll never forget, we taxi in and stop. He's sitting in the back, 
kind of sitting down. I climbed down the ladder and that guy comes driving up in his car, gets out. He gets out, takes two steps towards me and I go, and he looks over there and sees him and goes, okay. And never saw him again. <laughs> but yeah, so we, that, you know, when we got the airplanes, it, it, you could have easily got them and not just say, oh, it's another F-15. Oh, it was, it was, it was uh, totally different. Mm. Totally different. I mean, I can remember taking new guys in the squad. I mean, Rico, you know, Rico's got three MiG kills. Okay. I can remember sitting in the army area to take him out on his first quote, miss a uh, sortie, easy sortie. And I remember sitting in the army area looking over at him and he's like this. Looking at everything. And I said, I said, I need to tell him on the other radio. I said, you need a drool cup. Just strap you a drool cup on here, dude. <laughs> I said, you're ready for this. Just let's just go do it. You know, you'll you'll learn it. I said, you know, two two knee sh- boards with shit written all over them. I said, just it'll be fine. Just but study. Hmm. Don't just think you're gonna fly 1.2 hours a day, three or four times a week and know what to do with this thing. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. Could could you have done? And little did I know that, you know, in August, when they go over there, that they're going to need to use it like it's supposed to be used. And it worked 100%. That, that, was, the, that was the question I was going to ask. Could you have done the same thing or you know, could your guys have done the same thing? In the Gulf with a, with a, pre- with a regular missile. airplane, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I, I think so. Uh, there were certain, uh, like they may not have been able to carry the Amram or something else or whatever, but uh, yeah, hmm. they could have. It may not have been as sweet or as many. There may have been some that got away or uh, or whatever, but. Uh, Having the ability to uh, be as you know close to AWACS and and uh, you know what they could augment AWACS with with what they're looking at and everything. Like, oh yeah, mm. yeah, they could have. My guys could have, but I knew would miss it. You know, I mean, when I left, uh, you know that. Uh, trophy thing I left in the bar. Uh, when the 58th closed, they auctioned off a lot of stuff, but they kept that. And it's still now it's in the new 58. T- tell that story because I'm not sure that that, that was ever broadcast. I it's, think. It, when I left the 58th, uh, we had a great party and everything. But when I left, I had had a, uh, uh, like a little small liquor cabinet made multi-stage liquor cabinet had a glass door on it with glass and it, you know, and it had a felt thing in it and it had a bottle of Russian vodka in it and you close it and you lock it. And it had a plaque inside it. What it said was to the first gorilla to kill a MIG. So I give it to them. They're all happy and we're hooting and hollering and because it's in April, they don't know, you know, four months later, they're going to be, you know, living in the world's largest, you know, kitty litter box in the world, you know. So there they go. And so uh, JB gets his kill 
and I can, I'm listening to them. I listened to everything they did while I was in Iceland at the, up at the Navy secure location. And when they came home and then I came home, uh, we had a, they called for an informal get together at the grill bar. And so we'd go out there and JB and so he got to open it up and we all got to drink out of it and everything. And then they replenished it. So now oh, it's nice. still nice. It's, it's in the F 35 lightning two squadron. Very nice. Yeah. Before we, uh, I want to, I want to talk a little bit then about your philosophy as you came into the squadron and the things you did, we sort of, we, we've leapt ahead a little bit, which is fine. Um, okay. There were a couple of things I was going to ask you about. So, so one of them, you mentioned the secrecy behind MISIP. And Sly told me a pretty funny story um, which related to that. It was We weren't recording, and he said, you know, uh, to everybody who's listening, originally we were going to do this as a panel. So Paco and Sly were going to, um, you know, sort of have this conversation together, and I was just going to sort of sit and listen. But we, we didn't manage to make that work for various reasons. But um, I do want to ask you about this. So, so Sly told me that it red flags I, I don't want to tell the story because do you do you know what this he's talking about so this is hiding behind yeah. sec- the secrecy of missip can you can you tell the story yeah there are two things that happened that are memorable at red flag when we we went to red flag on one of the missip and we went a lot and we decided on one of the red flags it was a big one that we uh i wanted to take uh, the full capability of missile. So they had to go to Nellis and build uh, some um, extremely uh, faulted areas, you know, because our tapes, nobody was allowed to look at them. We had crew chiefs that weren't allowed. If we had radar problems, you had to have a certain line badge to even come up and look in the cockpit. Oh, really? Yeah. So we go to Nellis and we got everything all set up. And we go out on a missive hop or, yeah, missive hop that particular day. Bunch of lawn darts, you know, running around out there and just, you know, nug heads with, you know, good looking haircuts and shit. And we'd been there a thousand times. And we go out there and it was just, with the missive, we could just, we had so much situational awareness, you know, come on. And we're just wailing away, doing our thing and uh, come back. And, oh, well, no, we just start wailing away. And um, in Red Flag, they had kill removal. When you got shot, they had a goon that was watching and because everybody carried these pods that told where you were and three-dimensional this and that, and they had missile flyouts and stuff. <coughs> and so we're wailing away and everything. And all of a sudden, then we're cranking and we're turning out, man, and all these guys are chasing us and shit. And I'm going, I just don't need this high school shit. And so I just keep the mic and I said, all the F-16s are dead. End of discussion. You know, there's like 14 of them out there. Because I have four of my missile guys with me. I said, yeah, all, all you know, 16 of these assholes, they're, they're gone. They're dead. I, I'm not playing no more. So we go. And so when we go to the debrief, uh, because of uh, what the missile uh, could do, the debrief doesn't show uh, missile fly out. It just shows us where we are in all the F-16. Then it shows us doing a big pump out and then me making the call. This guy goes, you know, 
really nice haircut and shit. And he, he, he says, I, I need to see your tape. I said, I said, I ain't showing you shit. I don't have to show you shit. I said, but just be happy you're on our side because you're dead. You know, you had no clue. You had no clue what we do. I mean, it's beyond your comprehension. So just leave it alone. So when Sly tells that story, he says, but the, the so, so you say to the guy, well, you've got no idea what we can do. And the guy goes, yeah, but we were behind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you were dead. Yeah, they, they, they had no concept. And it was hard because Red Flag, uh, there, were, there were, you know, very few. Joe Bob and some of them knew why we were there. TAC knew why we were there and what we were doing and, and what the tapes were, you know, being evaluated and being used to tweak and everything, Hughes and everybody. But one of the other stories was we went out there again. We were there a lot. And uh, I'm watching I'm watching uh, my guys out there on a red flag hop, half-ass, half-ass. You know, I listened to the brief, bullshit brief. Yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm in a 58, you know, what the hell, yeah. We'll, let's go out here and we'll uh, do some shit. We'll do, you know, half-ass. Half, they go out half fast. I mean, it just sucked. Embarrassed me. And so I come back in the ready room there and they're talking and saying, well, you know, we could have done better and everything. I kick the door closed and I go, you guys embarrass me. Take off your gorilla patch. I don't want none of you assholes in the gym or in the club tonight. It was a Friday. I said, I don't want none of you assholes in the club tonight with anything to do with me. I don't want you to talk to me. I don't want you to wear a gorilla patch. You can wear an eagle driver patch. I don't give a shit what you wear. But right now, I don't want to see you. And when next week, when you earn the right to wear my patch, I'll let you. But just stay there away from me from now on. I mean, it really embarrassed the shit out of me. And let me tell you, the next week, it was ugly for them. Yeah. I mean, they were back to where they needed to be. And it was like by a Wednesday, I said, okay, put your patches on. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I made them yank them off. So I don't, this ain't the way we're doing this. We're not going to be half-assed and just, eh, it's Friday, what the hell, we're going to the club. No, we're not doing this. Was that generally sort of your um, your leadership style then? I, I, I don't know how you would describe that. I mean, maybe a, a sort of management trainer or something would know what the, de- the definition is, but, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve, not caring, I'm guessing, not caring about whether you were popular, expecting everybody to rise to the same standard as you. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, I don't care if you agree with me or not you know if you have your opinion i'll listen to it to a point but if it's an argument ain't my problem it's your problem this is the way we're doing it hmm. and i used to tell them a thousand times if there's a doubt in your mind there's no doubt period but it's my way you know i didn't just start i you know i didn't you know 
This ain't, this ain't new to me. Hmm. You know, I just want you guys to be the best you can possibly be. I remember take the ORI, you know, when we had the ORI, you know, the general that did the ORI debrief and said, best squadron I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, I was excited until they told me in April, well, you just got promoted though. You're leaving, going to Iceland. Iceland, how's that? But yeah, it was, it was. Now I, I, I did have some good guys and I did have a, uh, somebody that uh, was in personnel that was a very dear friend of mine, been an aggressive pilot. And, you know, like cheese grater, you know, he walked in, I was at the club. We were in the club one night there for red flag or whatever. And this big dumbass walks up to me and wearing his aggressive patch. And he goes, hi, I'm Rob Grater, sir. I said, yeah, I'm proud of you, but you know, what do you need? He said, I, I'd really like to be in your squadron. Really? I said, well, tell me about yourself. You know, so he tells me a little bit about it. And I went, well, let me check. So I go back Monday and pull up his record. I go, Hmm. You know, a month later, he's standing at the door. Uh, J.B. Kell, Tolini, yeah. So a lot of these guys, they asked to come because they knew me from school. J.B. went through the schoolhouse. Tolini went through the schoolhouse. Hmm. Grader went through the schoolhouse, you know. Drake so they, they knew who I was. Yeah. But they also knew that it was going to be my way. You know, we're not going to. We're not going to be worrying about chrome cigarette shit in the squadron. I don't care how pretty it is or whatever, but you know, we're not here to look good. We're not here to look good. How, how the day so I took over the day I took the command of the squadron, we had a you know change of command and all that kind of stuff. And I went back over to the squadron about four in the afternoon. I had a Marine exchange guy there um, and uh, kind of walk in. He goes, hey, you know, excited to have you come. I said, no, you know, clean your shit out. I already talked to the detailer. You're out of here. Opso comes out. Congratulations. I went, no, nah, man, you and I don't like each other. We never have. Pack your shit. You're out of here. Right. I mean, I just went through and the wing commander, he told the wing commander, he went to the wing commander, this guy did, and said, you've made the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. He will kill half those guys with his attitude the way he is. This wing commander's one star goes, huh, I've known him 20 years. I think he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. that, that was going to be my, my question about one of the things you hear about people when they ascend to leadership positions in the air force is they start your, you know, your expression is sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, sort of big blue kowtowing, you know, sort of enforcing things like uniform standards and, and that kind of thing. And I was going to ask, did you have a layer of protection that meant you could focus on being your squadron being tactical and, and not having to toe the line on things like. I worked for three wing commanders. When I was at Eglin, first one was a 414th uh, weapon school instructor when I was an aggressor. He and I knew each other, ended up being a four star. Second wing commander, he and I had been aggressors together. He ended up being a two star. 
third one. I didn't know him. Came in, seemed like a pretty good guy. And uh, going through the change of command, uh, his change of command, he's standing there, his wife's standing there, General Warner's standing there, General Warner's wife, Mary Sue's standing there, going through, hey, glad to meet you, ma'am. Sir, how you doing? I get to General Warner. Hey, Baco, how you doing, sir? I've known him forever. He goes, if this guy doesn't work out, let me know. That's what he said. <laughs> that guy immediately knew then, <laughs> next week, he's flying with us. And yeah. He flew with us the whole time I was there. Yeah. He was attached to us. And he went to the desert with him. That wasn't, was that, that wasn't Rick Parsons, was it then? That was Rick Parsons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I did have some top cover. And don't forget, I never did a staff tour. So you stayed, in, you stayed in the cockpit the whole time. I mean, we've missed out the fact you were flying MiG, the MiG-21 for 500 sorties, yeah. but that's in a – I'll put a link up here and, and people can – I, I, I did lose a year in the cockpit because I had to go to Air War College. Okay. They sent me to Air War College. And that, that was a – that was a real quick that, – that was just a, just a disaster. I mean, 210 of us, I graduated 210, which is fine. I could care less. <laughs> but funny. I am sitting – I am sit there. I'm sitting there. Are Ten seminar classes of twenty guys. I'm sitting in a seminar with twenty other guys. There's an army guy over here, a couple anchor clankers, and this and that. And there's an F-15 guy that I knew sitting here with me. And I'm looking around, and my instructor for Air War College, a female, um, I don't know what she did, historian or something. She's our instructor, and so we go around the the table introduce ourselves on day one um, so uh, uh, tell us who you are what you do and what command you came from so then uh, my turn um paco gunster uh tactical air command f-15 pilot i sit down and she goes and you can tell he's from uh, tactical air command because his hair is out of limits shit's in my hand basket right off the bat day one <laughs> You know, and I'm going, I'm, I don't say anything, but I'm going, one, I don't want to be here. And two, what is this? Hmm. So next F-15 guy, it's a female sitting here to my left. The two-star comes in to welcome us. He goes to each seminar. The two-star had been my squadron commander previously, but now he's a two-star. He comes in, everybody stands up, and we all sit down. He goes, uh, Looks around, he goes, Paco, gosh, how you doing? I said, I'm doing all right, sir. How about yourself? Looks like you're doing pretty good. He was a two-star. I said, looks like you're hanging in there. He goes, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And he tells the class, he goes, I know this guy right here. He, he can be a problem, but he, he's a good guy. And then he goes into, he goes into his speech. And he says, you know, welcome to the Air War College. Nah, 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 nah. And he says, this is where we groom the next chief of staff of the Air Force. My hand goes up. <laughs> and I can see in his face, like, just leave it alone. My hand goes up. He goes, oh, gosh, you have a question? I said, yes, sir, I, I do. I said, I'm, I'm perplexed here. I, I said, uh, next chief of staff of the Air Force, um, she's a CBPO uh, personnel officer 
and he's a chaplain. When was our next? When was our last chief of staff a chaplain or a CBP? He says, "Let's walk outside." So we walk outside, and he goes, "Here's the way this is going to work. One year, don't talk. I don't care what your grades are. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to throw you out. Just sit there, don't talk." And a year later, you'll probably go back to the line. You won't have to go worry about a staff job. I said, okay. <laughs> but, yeah. But my reputation was shit for a year, but I didn't care. All I wanted to do was get out of there. Yeah. When was our neck? When was our last chief of staff of Chapman? <laughs> or female CBPO personnel officer? Why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't have done that except I knew him. Yeah. In fact, he wrote my letter of recommendation to go to the weapons school as a lieutenant colonel squadron commander. <laughs> I did him good when I was in his squadron, and he did me good by sending me to the schoolhouse. And then I see him two years later, or many years later, when he was a two star. One of the, I can't stop laughing about that. Thing. <laughs> One of the things that um, I mentioned BD earlier, um, whose call sign will just have to remain BD. I can't expound on that uh, on this family friendly podcast. But he um, he mentioned your affiliation for is it WWF? Ooh, WWE, WWE, WWE. Oh, yeah. so not WWF. That's the World Wildlife Fund. Um, but WWE, and I just want to get this in before um, <laughs> before I forget. But but can you talk a bit about <laughs> how that manifested I, itself at weapons school? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, when I was, uh, I like it. I it, it used to be WWF, and then they were sued by the, you know, and they had to change it to WWE World uh, found uh, some foundation animal foundation. But <clears throat> and and I'll tell you, when I was a 58th commander. I used to pay per view WrestleManias and you know, squadrons, they all had to come over, wives and all kids, and sit around and watch Today. Hulk Hogan and all of them. But when I was in the weapons school, we used to go, to, there was a casino in Nellis and in Las Vegas. It's not there anymore. It's, it was a showboat. It was, uh, you could bowl there and go to a buffet. But upstairs, they had a wrestling thing where the WWF guys came to wrestle and they'd wrestle every. Uh, Friday and Saturday night. And uh, one or two of the guys from the schoolhouse would go with me every once in a while just for the entertainment. But I go, I take my daughter, she was five, you know, we go watch the wrestling. <laughs> and my favorite uh, guys were, uh, uh, they're called the Legion of Doom. And I remember taking my daughter, she's like five or six, and we're going up the steps by where their locker room is, and they came out road warriors in their makeup and everything they came out and they kind of stopped and i mean you know i'm like up to the guy's chest this guy's got like there's two of them and they're probably 375 400 pounds zero fat muscles in their shit you know i'll just say that huge and i stop and i go damn and my daughter starts crying it scares the shit out of her so she's hugging on my leg and i go holy crap and uh, I said, I love watching you guys and this and that. And, and they, they're friendly. They talk. Their manager comes out and they go to the ring. And they do their thing. 
<clears throat> I go a couple of more nights and I see a couple more weeks and I see their manager and I, I pull him to the side and I tell him who I am. I said, this is my name. That doesn't mean nothing to you. And this is what I do. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But what I'd like, every Friday at the Nellis Air Force Base at the weather school, we have VIPs come out. We get rides in the F-15 and they pass out tickets to their shows and stuff. I've flown Dean Martin and some of these guys. And I said, I would love for you guys, road warriors, to come visit my squadron. I said, we can't fly them because they weigh too much. They're too damn big. You know, they just try to eject it, just set fire to their boots. You know, they wouldn't go anywhere in the airplane. And uh, so he talked for a little bit and he said, you know what? Let me see what I can do. So he gets hold of me and he says, it's like on a Thursday. And he says, you can come out tomorrow. I said, all right, come on out. <clears throat> when you get to the gate and the cops are looking at you, you know, they're, they're not going to work a thing, but just call me. And so I drive down there and uh, Animal and Hawk, that's their names. And so I go down there, I, I pick them up. I, we go to the squadron. Morning fly is over. And the way we did VIP days in the afternoons, we'd show tapes and have a keg of beer and take them out on the flight line and take them on a ride. And it's just a total waste of time, except it, it was good for public, you know, PR. So I bring the road, <laughs> I walk in the squadron. We don't have scheduled VIP. And I walk in the squadron and these two guys walk in behind me and my ops officer goes, holy shit, who are these guys? Because they don't know, none of them know anything about wrestling. They don't, they know I go, but they don't go. I said, these are world champion tag team guys. This Hawking is an animal road warriors. And they've got all their shit on and everything. And we go to the flight line and we show tapes. They're very, very nice. They're not like their uh, personality in the ring. They're very, very cool and this and that and so we everybody's having a good time with them you know and i'm telling them to whip buffalo's ass and you know it's just it's just really cool and it gets to be about 5 30 and i said can you all uh, go to happy hour at the officers club with us and they said well, what is that and i said well it'll be all pilots from all over the base and all the different units squadrons be over there it'll be packed no 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 so I'd like y'all to go if you don't mind, you know, have a beer or two and come in and just, you know, make an appearance, you know. And they said, okay. So we go over there and let me tell you, Steve, we walk in the front door of the club and it's packed as it was back in that day. I mean, it is just packed, noisy, hot. The strippers haven't shown up yet in the back. They don't come until like nine. And it's just, I mean, you can't even hear yourself think. Jeannie, the bartender's running around. She knew who you, if she knew you, she knew what you wanted. She'd just bring it to you. You didn't have to go to the bar. Larry's the bartender and that and that. And we walk in there and he, it's, you could drop a pin. I walk in and these two guys walk in behind me. And people turn around and looking and I'm talking to Joe Bob and them. And I'm like, these are wrestlers. From, you watch that shit? And I'm going, really? Look at this. And they're going, shit. And so, and so we're talking and this and that. And so they stay for about an hour. But during that hour, I told one of them, Animal or Hawk, I can't remember which, I went, 
see that guy right over there by the bar that's leaning over the bar trying to order a drink from Larry? He said, yeah. I said, go over there, put your hand right between his legs and just throw him over the bar. <laughs> I said, he likes it. Really? I said, yeah. Go. And you know who it was? Mike, Mike Roy. Weighs well, 90 pounds, you know. He go, whew, flips his ass over the bar into the in back there where Larry is and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I brought the Road Warriors, Legions of Doom, to uh, out to Nellis to uh, now the Wing Commander stuff. They they didn't know, they didn't come over and see him or anything like that. But yeah, we brought them out there and had a had a good time with them. They were really pretty cool. Fridays was VIP day. We had. Sammy Davis, Dino, a bunch of acts from downtown. They would come. We'd have a flight suit for them and, you know, give them their training and then show them videos and stuff and then go out and fly them. Hmm. And I, I flew Dean Martin and it was fun. And then the next, about two weeks later, Buffalo was supposed to fly Sammy Davis. He came out, a little bitty guy. He came out we had a flight suit and this and that and he's, walking around smoking and we go out on the flight line and they talk to the enlisted guys, which is cool and give them tickets and stuff like that. Uh, wing commander's there obviously for, you know, real VIPs. And uh, he says, wing commander says, Mr. Davis, if you're ready, we can go ahead and climb in and get ready to go. And, you know, he's, I ain't getting in that motherfucker. <laughs> That's what he says. And everybody's going, uh, he goes, Dino flew two weeks ago, scared the shit out of me. He said, I ain't riding in that thing. I don't mind walking around out here, but I ain't. He said, well, that's kind of why you're here. He said, I don't give a damn what you think. I'm not going to. So he says, um, would you at least get in it so we can get some pictures? He said, I'll get in it by myself. But better not be anybody else get up that ladder. So he got up <laughs> in there and we took pictures. He wouldn't fly. He didn't fly. But I, here's, a, here's a story that will interest you to show you. Uh, how people were with that unit and how close we were with even the enlisted guys. My wife and I came back from Johannesburg in 2019. We had done a trip out in South Africa so I could see some white, white sharks and great whites and she could do a safari and all that type of shit. And we're coming back from Johannesburg and we land in Atlanta and go through customs. We're walking through customs and, do our global entry and all that kind of stuff. And then you pick up your bag and you walk through. And if you have anything to declare, you tell them. Otherwise, you just go on through. And we get to where the two border customs agents are. Guy on the right, Cassie's right here. Guy on the right just waves her on through. Guy on the left goes, stops me. and says, you know, put your bag up here. Oh, oh fuck. So I put my bag up there. Says, you got a passport? I give you a passport. He opens it up. When'd you quit flying the F-15? <laughs> this was in 19. You know, and I go, how in the hell? How in the hell you don't want to fly the F-15 by looking at my passport? He goes, I was a crew chief when you were there. Oh, right. How about that? 40 years later. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. 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 That, that was really, really probably one of the neatest things that ever happened. You know, this guy looks at my passport. When'd you quit flying the F-15? 22-year-old crew chief in the 433rd Fighter Weapons School. Squad. Incredible. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that is uh, more broadly then, coming back to something you did mention earlier, we, we did talk about earlier then, in terms of your success and the balance between 
being a, maybe a disciplinarian, um, showing respect, being prepared to listen to a certain point. Do you, you know, when you were going through this experience as the squadron commander for the 58th Tactical Fighter Squadron, the guerrillas, are you sort of feeling your way through that? Do you, do you have to, you know, is there an OODA loop? Are you looking at what's happening, adjusting, observing? You know, what, what do you do? You know, I, I, I probably, no, I, I probably, well, one, I, I was not uh, concerned about what my next rank was going to be. I didn't care about promotions, you know, and I, I was deep selected to lieutenant colonel and colonel, but I didn't care. All I wanted to do was what I needed to do right then, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, like it's a squadron commander, um, my, my thing was, um, how can we, how can we leave here? where it's just three squadrons of F-15s and do something other than fly against each other. And, and, and I spent 90% of my time on the phone, uh, primarily with Della, Nellis and the 422. And I, I remember, you know, Nellis, one of the big things about Nellis is Nellis was where they wrote the 3-1 tactics manuals. They bring people in from the field and, and, and they put together 3-1 manuals. And a lot of the tactics that were developed at Nellis were as a result of the 422 tactics development. Those are very experienced guys. And there was stuff that was in 3-1 that I would go, my guys can't do this shit. Brand new lieutenant can't do this shit. You know, he's going to be hanging on. You know, he can't do this shit. We need tactics that are the divide that are, are uh, made that a squadron can do, not the 422. And so Dick Banholzer was the squadron commander. And I can remember talking to him and General Jumper going, when you're going to do tactics development for the F-15, I'm willing to offer up my MISIP F-15s and bring them out and let you use them with half of us on the team. You got half your 422 guys. The rest of them are my guys. And I bring not just me, not just Cheese, not just Alini, but I'm going to bring lieutenants. And if they can't do this shit, this shit is not right. You know, we need to make it right. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And, and it gets expensive, but uh, you can split, you know, money, how much money can you come up with, tech can come up with, you know, and so probably 90% of my time was spent um, doing that, and there was, I had some discipline issues, you know, I had a guy blow a DUI, he called me, you know, and said, hey, Saturday night, he blew blew a DUI, I said, damn, that could be a career Hmm. ender back then, he blew a DUI, Hell of a good guy, mid-kill. I said, all right, I need you to come out to the squadron on Sunday. So he comes out on Sunday. I called the Jack lawyer. He comes out. I said, he blew a DUI, no farm, no foul. Um, I'd like to, you know, do a letter of reprimand on him. I'll have a letter of reprimand. We'll sign it and everything. And then I'll keep it for his permanent file. He said, okay. 
So he witnesses that, signed and everything. I said, okay, thanks. He leaves. Monday morning, 8 o'clock, we come in. Rain. Hey, what you got? Um, what's this? Uh, looking at the blotter, so-and-so blew a DUI. Guess we need to get Article 15 ready. And I went, oh, shit. Really? He said, yeah. I said, crap. I wrote him a letter of reprimand. He goes, when? I said, yesterday with the lawyer. I don't think we can do two <laughs> different levels. He goes, next time you call me. He said, but you're getting away with this one. <laughs> so I, I did not mind taking care of them. As long as they were uh, worthy of getting taken care of. You know, I didn't want McGill. Didn't you? No. When, when I took over the squadron and got rid of the Marine that was there, he was worthless as hell. Mm. I knew him because I was in another squadron. I knew who he was. I knew what he was. He was worthless as hell. And I got rid of him, and I called the detailer, Marine detailer. I said, get this image out of here and to, by tomorrow. So he said, he'll be gone. And so um, he said, you know, we need to uh, set up his replacement. I said, I don't need a Marine flying some goddamn Hornet coming in here telling me shit about how to employ the F-15. Mm-hmm. If they want to learn about the F-15, I'll go brief them at El Toro or whatever they want to. But I don't need them. I don't need a damn Marine taking up my sorties in my space. So you can put him in one of the other two squadrons. You slam him upstairs or downstairs. I don't really give a shit you know, where you want to put him. And he said, well, okay, I'll pass that along. So he passes that along to his, gets all the way up to his Marine two-star that comes to my one-star uh, wing commander who comes to me and says, that ain't your decision. A Marine has always been assigned to the 58th building. That's the way it is. I said, what does it make a shit? Why does it make a shit where he is? Put him in the, one of the other two F-15 squadrons. Why does he have to be in mine, you know, with missile and shit? They don't have missile. He said, it's above your pay grade. I said, uh, whatever. So he shows up, you know, and I, I call Tyndall and say, you know, is this guy a good guy? Yeah, he seemed like a good guy. I, just, I, I already have a hard on for that he's coming, you know, because I didn't want a Marine. And, you know, he shows up and he's, you know, I didn't talk to him for like a week. I see him walking down the hall, you know, hey, sir, how you doing? You know, I just walked by and just, hey, dude. One time I checked him into the wall, just for him, boom. He's going, damn, who? And so he's talking to the guys going, is that guy, the guy that looks like he's 10? Is he the squadron commander? Yeah, but uh, he's just, that's just the way he is. Yeah. You know, he, you either are one of us or you're not and right now i don't think you are <laughs> and so uh, he eventually got his clearance and and uh flew with him a bunch and that stuff and now um it was probably one of the best decisions because two of the marines that were with me at constant peg called me and said you got the best hornet driver that i can think of and now you know we're close we're as close as brothers but no, I didn't want any part of him hmm. and didn't accept him when he showed up. Hmm. So that's my bad. But yeah, he, he was more than worthy of being there. 
just can you give an example? It's interesting you to hear you saying, you know, about Lips Banholzer and 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 John Jumper saying to them, look, no, it's too complex. I'll bring you know my airplanes. You can have some of my guys. But what can you give an example of what would be too complicated for? I'm not asking you to share anything classified, but but can you give an example of a tactic that's too complex for a new wingman? Or well, like. In particular, at the time, the missive airplane, not only its avionics, but there were some there were some weapon systems, there were some uh, assets that it had that uh, were uh, in very uh, the switchology and everything. It, it was pretty intense. And remember, uh, they didn't get it in replacement training, RTU. Tyndall didn't have it. Uh, Langley didn't have it. So if you came to me from Langley or Bitburg or Schusterberg or something, we're the only ones that have it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would send guys that came to McDonnell Douglas in the middle of the night so that they could reprogram their simulator so that they could learn just some of the switchology. Right. Oh, shit, yeah. You'd fly a simulator at McDonnell Douglas at two in the morning for a week just to understand you weren't even allowed in the airplane. Okay. So now, now you're going to take guys with two, 3000 hours in the F-15 that know how to fly the F-15. That's not the issue. It's using missile. And you are going to develop in and out and crank tactics and all this kind of stuff. And then you're going to take a Lieutenant that has 50 hours in it and say, hang on asshole, you know, uh-uh. Yeah. His field of view is about this far. Mm-hmm. The, everything that's going on around him, because he's confused. He's confused at what he's doing. I mean, what he's listening to and everything. So it's very easy to sit down and write uh, tactics that, hey, this is what we're going to do, hoping that everybody that's flying that tactic has 3,000 hours. Mm-hmm. It doesn't float with me. It, it, it was no different than, you know, and I, I related it back to the weapons school. It's no different than, well, hell, why don't we just take him right out of RTU as a lieutenant and send him to the weapons school? What's the difference? Mm. I told Banholzer, I said, we have criteria. We had criteria when he went through the weapons school. I said, we had criteria for you to be here. You know, you had to have so many hours. You had to be rated this long. And no longer than this is a very small window. You had to have uh, so many hours. You had to have all this criteria to show up. But yet we can write tactics and put them in 3-1 that some brand new LT is supposed to be able to do. That bullshit. Hmm. You know, that's just not right. You know, we need for those tactics to be valid. We need input from them, too. You might think they're stupid. You know, and I told Ben, I said, what do you care? All your guys have 3,000 hours, long dark drivers and all these guys. You know, you've got all this experience level. Everybody walking around, lieutenant colonels and shit. I said, I got guys walking around that, you know, you know, I still worry about them in the pattern sometimes, hmm. you know. So, and I need to bring them up to speed. So that's that's what we did. And we took them to Nellis and Triple ACT, one of the biggest uh, tactics development uh, programs back in the 80s and 90s. It's called Triple ACT, uh, all aspect, uh, everything. And uh, 
we were 50% of it. Hmm. We had cheese and we had Tallini and we had JB and we had me and we had McGill, but we also had Rico and we had um, uh, Bruce Till and we had uh, Murphy and Oates. So we had the dumbasses that were brand new. Hmm. And I'm calling them dumbasses because, <clears throat> not because they're dumbasses, but because they're, well, they're dumbasses. You know, they, they, you know, they want to be the best, but they just haven't had the time to, to learn 90% of this airplane. Hmm. Well, they need to be there and they need to have a voice just like me to say, well, this is too hard for me. I, I think it would have made it easier if I'd have known this or if I'd have been there. Okay. 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 Hmm. And, and that triple ACT thing that we did, for uh, for uh, two months, where I loaned them half my airplanes, and as long as they gave us half the crew, was phenomenal in bringing tactics development back to the field instead of just Nellis saying the more complex we make it, the better it must be. No, not necessarily true, you know. And for me, you know, when I walk into a, a squadron, I had to go. You know, shit. I'm not sure these guys could do this stuff, and 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 that's what they need. And so that's what that's what what we had. We did this triple ACT all altitudes thing, and I mean, it was intense. And during that entire program, of all the hundreds and hundreds of sorties, and and it led, I think, to the redevelopment of the weapon schools and to the integration of multi-systems and like we saw at the storm and all that kind of stuff. I think it led to that, that particular program, triple ACT within that program, thousands of sorties that we flew hundreds of sorties. We, flew. we had one fratricide, one F-15 shot down one other F-15. It was me. Really? And I remember debriefing telling Manholzer, I said, yeah, I did. I, I just, you know, misidentified and then slammed him, you know, slammed him. If I can do that, what do you think that lieutenant over there, he'll kill five of us, you know? I said, so if I got that, me, you know me, Ben, I've known you a thousand years. If I got that fucking confused, what do you think that guy right there is going to do? But yeah, we had one fatricide. It was me. Smacked another F-15. And not from 30 miles. It's three miles on my nose. But I wasn't looking at him. I was, I, and I told him, I said, I was, uh, I told Wayne, I said, I got confused a little bit by what I was looking at and just said, I, got, I think I'm getting ready to get asshole. And let it go. And I just smacked him. Band holes him. I said, yeah. I wasn't afraid to admit it. I said, I was just confused. But by God, if I'm confused, these guys, if they're not telling you confused, they're just lying to you. So, and that's, that's how we had to do it. Do you think, do you think that those sorts of lessons are learned in the long run? Or do you think that they get forgotten? I ask, it's a bit of a loaded question because um, Earl Henderson said to me in, you know, 15 years ago or so um, that the tactics he was seeing were far too complicated and that they would go to shit 
the minute uh, an mm-hmm. engagement started mm-hmm. and that it would all then just be a massive shit show. Um, it was. It was. It was. And that's that was the problem. You know, 3-1, which was our uh, classified tactics manual for the F-15, was probably two inches thick. You know? Hmm. Damn, F-15 spin book was as thick as that. I mean, it, they, they were sitting there. It was just, you know, you would go, well, we didn't teach it in the weapon school. Hmm. We don't do this shit in the weapon school. This is stuff that's written down that where, where would you ever be able to do this? And if you've never done this and you try to do this, hmm. I mean, Earl, you know, oh, he remembers we would go out in T-38s, four or six T-38s, and we could totally disrupt an entire 40-plane package of a plan in 30 seconds. You could just fly through them, and it'd be just a shit show. You know, what, what are they doing? You know, what, 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 you know what, what are we doing here? You know, why, why does it have to be so hard? You know, it just doesn't have to be that damn hard. You just have to know what you have available to you to use to your benefit, hmm. you know? And you have to be, you have to have absolute confidence that that guy that's 9,000 feet beside you is the same way. Hmm. And that guy was trained the same way, you know, that he's, he is ready to use 90% of that airplane and, and knows what to do with it. If not, put him out there and let him, Cap for AWACS or something, you know, even back there 200 miles away from you. But put the people that know what they're doing and, and write those kind of tactics. They don't have to be the most uh, difficult. You don't have to, you know, the more complex we make it, maybe it'll be better. No, not necessarily true. You know, it's too hard to follow. If you're sitting in a briefing and there are guys, I've sat in briefings where there are guys that write, this side and this side while you're briefing and you're sitting there going, are you going to be reading that while we're out there? Hmm. Uh, What are you doing? That's like telling Rico, you need a drool cup. You know, if you're not ready to fly this off, just tell me if if so, just do what I told you to do and it'll be fine. But you can't write this game plan. People need to know this game plan because they're flying the F-15 and this is what the F-15 does. This is how we do it. Did, did you but see, damn. so you said that you had reviewed the, you, you were watching what the guys are doing when they were out there and in, well, January 17th, 91, that was when JB got the kill, the first kill. But did you see that simplification? Did you see those sorts of smarts and that maturity coming through then in the oh. way they were, they were operating? I can remember listening to one of them and that it may have been the first night or maybe the second day or something, but I can remember listening and going, shit, this is easier than red leg. (laughs) It's just that there's no kill removal. Kill removal is going to be, it's it's just, it's going to be kill. You know, I mean, it was so smooth. They're pumping. They've got their cat. I mean, it was just, the calm, I mean, it was just, it was, it was like, this is Christmas, you know, 
please, please put up more airplanes for them because they're all going to be fighting over these guys. You know, give them some more. It's this, you know, what scared you was uh, this could get so easy that somebody could get hurt. And, you know, like Rico, when you talk to Rico, you know, his first kill was, you know, he got drug into badass shit and then he got out of a minute. And so then he was able to, you know, chase a guy into the ground, but I'm, you know, bad spot about him. And, and he's the first to kind of tell you that, damn, I could have, it was, this could have been easy enough that I could have hurt myself. You know, this was not that hard. I just made wrong decisions, but he learned from it. You know, same thing with Chuck. You know, they were worried about this and that, and this and that. And, oh, turning around. How many are out there? This and that, and this and that. Oh, wing going over the top of me. I can expect that because of what the sort responsibility was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's ready. I mean, yeah, you can you can make it too difficult, but I think I think once it's settled down, uh, you know, Opie Denny with his two kills or Cheese with his, you know, it was just, yeah, it was a little more difficult than, you know, somebody said that, uh, I can't remember who told me, I think it was a guy from Langley told me that one of the pre-briefs that they got before the war even started between August and January, one of the pre-briefs from some academian or somebody who came over there and talked to him said, uh, uh, our, our analysis tells us that uh, we will probably lose uh, half of our fighters. And this friend of mine from Langley, been in the web school with me, he goes, kind of looks to the right and left and goes, damn, sucks for you two guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> we ain't losing half this shit. This is, this, it's just not going to be, you know? Yeah. I mean, if I'd have sat there and listened to somebody tell me we're going to lose half of these, I'd have thrown a bullshit flag and said, no, hmm. it's just not going to be. Hmm. Well, why would you instill that before we even go? Hmm. Nothing. There's nothing in my career that has told me that I'm going to lose anything out there. You have not proven anything to me that I'm going to lose hmm. this fight. That's why I said early on, my thing was when I lay down and dream and stuff like that or wish that I was over there, you know, when they went, I, I wished I could have been there with them. Even if even if I had just been there to, to see them when they came back, but if I'd have got to fly, you know, my thing would have been, I, I will guarantee you that I would have gone out there with the mindset, I'm going to gun one of these motherfuckers. Period, you know. Early on, yeah, I'll use the great whites or whatever we're doing out there. But if I'm comfortable, I'm gonna smack one of these. I mean, I just, I just felt that way. Hmm. It was interesting. You, you, you know, you were candid about how it made you feel that you weren't able to do those. And um, a slice yeah. said to me, he'd never heard you say that before. That was so. That was no. It. Uh, yeah. In fact, I didn't even really say it uh, when I went back and we had our little get together. Mm. You know, I, I was very happy for them and proud for them. And, and they have 
over the years, uh, they are constantly inviting me to come to a reunion or this and that. And I, eh, I got something to do. And it was when I said that, that McGill, one, that you're talking about, uh, called me one day and goes, yeah, I understand now. I said, yeah, I, that was you all. That wasn't me. Mm. You, you might think that uh, it was me. I wasn't there. I was gone. Mm. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like Aaron Rodgers went in a game saying, damn, I, I sure do like previous coach. It's not the coach. I, I was gone. Mm. The day I left, I told Chuck, I said, the day I left, I left. Yeah. I'm, I'm history. But you were, uh, I mean, one of the, the things that was curious, we, we were emailing back and forth. This is, as usual, um, mostly because of my timelines, it's taken a few months to happen. We, we, we've, been, we've been talking about this since the beginning of the year. But um, one of the things you'd said in your email was, uh, I think, uh, you when you when you took when you took control of you took charge of the squadron and you were doing this with them and you were working with them you were going to get fired or you were going to fail or, or maybe you were going to be a success and then the outcome of course their performance out in the desert um vindicated your approach so there must be some sense i mean you talk very fondly about these guys i've multiple times yeah. i've heard you say you know nothing but respectful and you love them yeah your guys they did they did great but there must be a sense of you must get some joy from it for yourself well, not 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 on their behalf not altruistically but for yourself you must get some. I, I think what i get from it is um spending you know what i get from it is it goes back to almost like athletics okay practice and a game plan and it works Back to basics. Go back to the basics and expect proficiency. Expect, uh, you know, you to uh, do as you're coached. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it does. It just um, – and, and for me, not – you know, and I, I don't – I wouldn't tell another squadron commander or whatever, but the approach that I had uh, when I took over the 58th was – until the day they let me go, all I'm going to do is try to fly as much big force employment as I can. I want to be everywhere. I want to be anywhere intact that will have me. And what I want, and it was kind of an ego trip, what I want is I want, if the 58th walks in, I want everybody to know who the 58th is and to go, oh, shit, those guys are back. And that's, that's all I expected. I had, and like I said, they were, you know, when I told them to take their patches off or when I, um, uh, you know, would have a down day when I'd just come in and cancel flying. I mean, you know, I mean, come on, you guys, you're just embarrassing me. You know, it's not about anything else, but I do respect myself. <laughs> I expect more from you all. So if you're not going to respect yourself and you just want to half-ass it, then go upstairs or go over there. But don't, don't walk around in the 58th thinking that you can just float while you're over here. Because I will. I'll, I'll have you reassigned. I'll send you somewhere. I'll get rid of you. 
there are plenty of guys banging on the door that know who I am that want to come. Hmm. I'd be more than happy to have them come. And I, the wing commanders, the three wing commanders that I worked for, I only had one DO that didn't really like me. And uh, uh, really, uh, he was, uh, I think he was more jealous of who I was and what I was doing than, than anything else. And uh, he was really hampering uh, what I was trying to do early on. And uh, it was pretty cool because I, I happened to, on a Friday night, after a little bit of weed or something, I was talking to the wing commander at the time. And I said, I said, you know, I, I said, I got an issue with so-and-so. He's really in my ass over here. The guys are seeing it. Monday, he told him he was not allowed in my squadron. Really? Full colonel. Really? And the guy that replaced him was a great guy. Mm. Parker, I am... So I think they trusted me, you know. It sounds like... They trusted me. Yeah. I mean, everybody that I've spoken to, and I and I knew how to push them. I mean, I I knew how to push them to to the limit that okay, enough's enough. You know, they need time off, or you know, need to back off. You know, clean the jets off. You know, I do that every once in a while, once a month or so. Clean the jets off. They come in. Oh shit, no tanks. Yep, we're back to basics. One v one BFM clean. Thanks for tuning in to Temp Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.